Guess what, cinephiles? I've just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S., so you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN. Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They're on ExpressVPN. So you can, you can gain access to like thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to the stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there, when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using ExpressVPN. And it's incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. Hi, this is Steve. With the release of Christopher Nolan's film Dunkirk last week, there has been a lot of talk about World War II films, and John and I thought it would be a great idea to explore one on the cinephiles. The problem is, which one? After all, there have probably been more movies made about World War II than any war in history. Should we try something heavy like Saving Private Ryan or The Thin Red Line? A great character study like Patton? Or a comedy like Stalag 17? There are also films about civilians caught up in the war, like Casablanca. Oh, and then there's the amazing Bridge on the River Kwai. Or we could dig into Holocaust films like Schindler's List, The Piano, and Life is Beautiful. Truth is, just saying the names of great movies like this gets me excited for future episodes. But this week, John and I wanted to dig into something fun. And since this year is the 50th anniversary, we decided to do one of the classic testosterone-filled ensemble films of the 60s. 
The Dirty Dozen, starring Lee Marvin, Charles Bronson, John Cassavetes, Ernest Borgnine, George Kennedy, Telly Savalas, and both Jim Brown and Donald Sutherland in the roles that made them stars is rebellious, exciting, violent, challenging, and a whole lot of fun. So, that's The Dirty Dozen, this Friday, on The Cinephiles. You've all volunteered for a mission which gives you just three ways to go. Either you can file up in training and be shipped back here for immediate execution of sentence, or you can file up in combat, in which case I will personally blow your brains out, or you can do as you're told, in which case you might just get by. You must not attempt to escape. There will be no excuses, there will be no appeal. Any breach of either of these conditions by any one of you means that you will all be shipped right back here for immediate execution of sentence. You are therefore dependent upon each other. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, host, and actor here in Los Angeles, California, and now officially a columnist. You're a columnist. My gosh. What yeah. am I doing in my life, Steve? I don't know. You're going to be one of those Renaissance people. <laughs> yeah, or exhausted and dead. Well, that, I think that's how you get there. <laughs> is, that, is that right? Well, what were those painters? Who were those painters in the Renaissance? Like sculptors? Who were those people? Da Vinci, Michelangelo, Those were the Raphael. main guys? Weren't yeah. there like smaller guys who didn't do... Like, I'm not a, sure. I'm not Tom Cruise or writer, producer or anything like that. Like, who, yeah. were those, who were the smaller guys? That's what uh, I want to Well, know. we don't know their names, do we? I mean, like, I know <laughs> that like, when we, when you, if you go to the Sistine Chapel, there's like 50 guys that are up on their back. That's true. You know, that's he, true. He, they do, you know, when those masters, they had a whole bunch of assistants doing all of their work. Right, right. And some of those assistants, if I was really an arts scholar, I could tell you, became known artists. But right. There must have been somebody that Medici didn't, that sponsored that didn't quite get there. Of course. Yeah. Well, in every in every generation. There, well, and this is the thing that occurred to me. Now, yeah. we're totally off topic. <laughs> but it's something that Sorry, occurred to me. Sorry, I've been on the top 10 shoe too long. It, is that, is that luck, is how big a part luck plays in all this. Oh, absolutely. And what it makes me wonder is, like, for instance, every screenwriter I know, they will tell you, almost all of them, that their favorite screenplays never got made. Yeah. yeah and yeah. that means, and I always think of this, you know when uh, the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer stop motion yeah, film? Yeah, love that one. And they go to Rankin the, and Bass, right? Right. Yeah. They go to the Island of Lost Toys. Yes, Misfit Toys. Island of Misfit Toys. Yeah. I always think about the Island of Misfit screenplays. <laughs> Is that <laughs> there's this there? world of all these great stories by the greatest writers in the world. And they never got made. You might you might have just come up with a new IFC animated show. <laughs> That's brilliant. Okay. And, and and what's funny too is that also means that there are all of these incredibly talented actors mm -hmm. and writers and directors that didn't get that break or oh, yeah. just you know something happened and they got distracted and that they're probably the majority. Yeah. And so the great Renaissance painters that we've never heard of. Yeah. There's probably there's probably another Da Vinci in there that never came out. Never came out. Yeah. A bunch of Salieri's. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and even Salieri, we know a lot more about. We know than, only because of the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, we've digressed. <laughs> but we digress. <laughs> we come back. Yes. Uh, this, we, this week we decided because Dunkirk is coming into the movie theater. It's a big World War II movie. That's here. It sounds like it's going to be really good. Yeah, yeah. And I saw the first ten minutes. I've said this on a couple other shows. I saw the first ten minutes in IMAX when I went to see Rogue One over at Universal City, mm. um, and it was fantastic and i don't care if i see this by myself the only way i'm seeing it is in imax because it just really they shot it in imax and it takes advantage of that technology in a way i've never seen before um it's yeah i can't wait to see it and so we decided we were thinking about world war ii films yeah and the one we came to do i think this is the best film about world war ii mm, 
No. No. Do I like it? Is it is it like one of my movies that I go back to over and over again? Yes, it yes, is. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we're talking about The Dirty Dozen. It's 1967. Yeah. And this is one of what I would say are three manly ensemble movies of the 1960s. Absolutely. One of them we've already talked about, which is Magnificent Seven. Yes. And the other one for me, which might be my favorite of the three, is The Great Escape. Oh, yeah. Which I would love to do some point. A lot of people have asked us to do that one. I love that movie. Steve, something's wrong with us because we are avoiding the opuses. We're avoiding The Godfather. We're avoiding uh, uh, Seven Samurai. We're avoiding Great Escape. So... At some point, we're, we're doing them. We're gonna I have mean, to put we, our boots in and wade into the water. But and we've do done this. Jaws. We've done, done Star Wars. But I mean these done... three-hour ones. I mean these three-hour sure. ones. We've well, and also in. we've been talking about forever. Yes, is Lawrence of Arabia. That's true. I mean, absolutely. I mean, look, the reality is we're going to be doing the cinephiles for a long time. Let's hope so. And yeah. not every single episode is going to be the big right. You know, we you know Apocalypse Now. That, that t- was a good one. That, that was a long that, one. That's a big, huge one. That and it took some time to get ready and yeah. some time to do. And we're going to do more of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So okay, you've heard so some previews of things to come. But today <laughs> is the Dirty Dozen. Right. Um, so how did you first come to this film? Uh, I think I saw it with my dad when I was younger in my 20s, maybe on some stopover back home after I had uh, completed, well, maybe when I was in AIT, you know, in training and stuff like that, I would go home and visit my family every every few months, like for a weekend or something, I'd get, I'd get a pass. And I think maybe because I was in this military mindset, this was one that I saw with my dad, classic, classic film. And I was getting into Lee Marvin, and of course I was a massive Charles Bronson fan growing sure. up because of Death Wish, yeah. and then going backwards into his uh, resume of films. But this one just kind of, always stood out because of the like the score and then there's all these amazing actors and when you come into film and you really appreciate acting like you you hunt out these ensemble pieces that take advantage of all these great actors like George Kennedy, Ernest Borgnine, right. you know, uh, uh, Lee Marvin, like we said before, Richard Jekyll, who's a great character actor, shows up in a bunch of films, uh, and Donald Sutherland, a very young Donald Sutherland. Yeah. So there's so much about this film that just hit all the right points. And the shocking part about it is, Steve, watching it for this podcast, I forgot that it was two and a half hours. It's a it's a long movie. It's a long and movie. And probably a little too long for me at this point. I would agree with it's you. It's a little slow. It is. You know, like, there, I still totally like it. Yes. But there are points where even I, who am pretty patient, I'm going like, okay, we can move along. Well, let's move <laughs> Just along. build that camp already. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, uh, for How me, about you? Yeah, yeah. for me, I have I, I have no memory. Okay, because I've always just always existed. Right, and it's definitely one of those movies we talked about before. You're switching channels. Oh, here I'm in the middle of the Dirty Dozen, right. and I would just sit and watch the rest of it, right. which meant that. Like a lot of movies, this is one that I really hadn't seen the beginning Mm -hmm. nearly as much as I'd seen the middle and the end. Right. So always when I see the beginning, I'm like, oh, right. We start with this hanging. It's a whole stuff that I never really remember as well. Yeah. Um, But it definitely became one of this is the Saturday afternoon. I think I'll watch Dirty Dozen again, you know, just because it makes me happy. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, a little bit about the filmmaking uh, and the people working on it. You know, usually if there's a big name person, I try to do some research. So I give a little biography Mm -hmm. and I wasn't going to do that on this one because I didn't feel like uh, Robert Alwork, the director, was that important that I need to go. But I kind of looked some stuff up and I went, you know, this guy's kind of interesting. Okay. So uh, here's so he uh, grew up in the East Coast from a fairly wealthy family. Mm -hmm. And uh, was going off to be a respectable person. Went to University of Virginia. He's very well educated. Oh, he's a Cavalier. Nice, yeah, nice. he he was a letterman on the football team. Wow. Yeah, and oh. then dropped out. 
because huh. there was a super low, low level job at RKO Pictures and he wanted to go work in film and his family disowned him. Wow. And he lost out on a huge hunk of stock in Chase Bank. Oh. And so people think that he might have given up more to be a director than anybody else in the history of film. I mean, this guy would have been uber rich. Wow. And he said, no, I want to go make movies. When Robert Alwork, when he first came to Hollywood, one of the first movies he worked on as an assistant director is Limelight. With Charlie oh, Chaplin. Okay. Yeah, nineteen fifty-two. First, one of his like his only talk, fully talking picture, right? Well, he did more than that. Did he the, do the, more talking is, pictures? Yeah, because uh, okay. he did Great Dictators talking picture. Well, and no, then, but uh, yeah, all right, that's right, that's but right. But in that's the right. post, yeah, like like Limelight, he did other ones too right. that were not very successful. But is this one of his last ones? Is Limelight one of his last ones? In the U.S. In before the US, he went gotcha. off into Europe and okay. did, he probably did three more, three or four uh, more. After that. So Robert worked on that film. Yeah, he worked okay. on that film. That's a hell of. Can you imagine? Like you come to Hollywood as a kid and you're working with Charlie Chaplin, especially Mr. Multiple Takes. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> As we covered, yeah. yeah. He worked in television for a long time. And then his run of movies is really interesting because yeah. he's uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Yeah. You know, and there's a uh, sweet, sh- what's the name? I can't remember. Okay. Anyway, uh, he, he has a very interesting list of films that are all, oh, and The Longest Yard. Oh, that's him, a great film. Which I makes love perfect. That. And they all have sort of this edgy yeah. kind of, they're a little bit mm-hmm. off of the norm. Right. Um, and kind of can't be fun. And, and against authority. Yeah, definitely against authority. authority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and the other person, uh, originally, do you know who they wanted to play the Major Reisman? It's a real... Uh, Burt Lancaster? You're real close. Oh. The Duke. John, John Wayne. W- John Wayne would have been interesting as hell. Yeah. Especially because he kind of did this in the Green Berets. Right. Well, uh, what, like a year or two later. So, yeah, interesting. Okay. Yeah, and John Wayne, it was just... there was Apparently, there was originally a f- an affair between Major Reisman and an English woman, and he oh. was just like... He, it seems like John Wayne was uncomfortable with the anti-authoritarian, yes. anti-establishmentness of the film. Well, he's a conservative. And he dropped out, and mm-hmm. they get Lee Marvin. Yes. And again, I looked into a little bit of Lee Marvin, and he is more interesting. Oh, Lee's yeah. an interesting guy. Um, uh, he was uh, in the Marines, mm-hmm. wounded in the Pacific in World War II, mm-hmm. and he kind of came back to the U.S. No intention ever to be an actor. Right. He uh, is working as a plumber's assistant. And there's a community theater that they're doing some plumbing work on. And they look at him and say, hey, we just lost a guy playing this bit part. Can you play this part? And that's how he started acting. Really? Yeah. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. And then that led him to some off-Broadway work and some Broadway work. Mm -hmm. And then he came to the Hollywood in the early 50s. And he just is one of those guys that was a working actor for a decade. Yeah. And he's a he actually acted in a bunch of important movies with little bit parts. Okay. And then he ends up being a TV star. But then the big break for him is Liberty Valance. Yeah, the man who shot Liberty Valance. Playing man. the title role. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just, every scene he's in, he is great. It's unsettling as hell, man. Yeah. And not intimidated. You're, no. with J- you're with John Ford, Jimmy Stewart, John Wayne. Marvin totally holds his own. Yeah, he does. It's the voice and his just demeanor in every scene that he's in. He's a wiry, wispy guy, but it scares the hell out of he's you. He's got this intensity mm-hmm. that is completely his own. Yep. It's his own. Just in the way, you know what? In the way that John Wayne has this masculine power that is his own. Yeah, right. Exactly. Lee Marvin has his own brand mm-hmm. of whatever that is. Yeah. Uh, wins the Academy Award for Cat Baloo. Right. Which I've never seen. <laughs> okay. Have you seen it? No. Yeah. Which is the one that is the musical? Paint that's Your Wagon? Paint Your Wagon. Okay, so Cat Blue is the one with Jane Fonda? Yes, that's yes. Jane Fonda. I need to see that one. Yeah, I, it's supposed to be good. I'm criminally negligent on the Fonda resume, so I need to watch more of Jane Fonda's movies. Um, I've never seen Clute. I've never seen... I don't think I've China ever seen Syndrome. Clute either. 
Yeah. Clute's supposed to be great. It was a film she school won movie. The best Oscar. Oscar. And I've yeah. seen clips from Clute and it, in terms of cinematography, yeah. we discussed Clute in film school. Wow. I don't know that I've ever seen the whole movie. It might be a good one for us to look at. We down could the road. Do, to do one that neither of us have seen and mm-hmm. are coming to for the first time. Yeah, that'd be that'd fun. actually be a lot yeah. of fun. Okay. okay. So um and this is, you know, we haven't seen everything. Yeah. Like it's just you know, you just can't. Um but I've seen Dirty there's, Dozen a there's lot. There's still room in the cinephiles for other folks. A lot of That's new right. stuff. That's um right. uh and then uh, and then we get to the Dirty Dozen. Yeah. Um and and really, I think the Dirty Dozen for Lee Marvin, this is the peak for him. Mm-hmm. And he does a lot of movies in the 70s. Yeah. Oh, I was looking at the resume. I've seen almost none of them. Wow. Yeah. And then he does a few movies in the 80s. Uh-huh. Um, and You never saw Hell in the Pacific? You never saw Vanishing Hell in the Pacific Point? I've seen. That's How in about the 60s. Vanishing Point? Did you see Never that? seen Vanishing oh, okay, Point. okay, okay. Hell in the Pacific is a fascinating yeah. movie with no ending. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, to share Mufuni. Mufuni, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Should we get into the movie? <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, we start with a uh, hanging. I'm sorry. Which is pretty brutal. What a way to begin a movie, man. Like, yeah. right off the bat, no opening titles, just the presentation into the situation. And we see this kid like, and we don't hear the other side of this kid's Nothing. situation. And he is just hung. I mean, in the late 60s, this is like when this movement is happening, this, uh, the social movements are happening of going against authority, never trust anyone over 30. You know, you're showing this just uh, capital punishment, in essence, in a military situation, but still capital punishment. It's completely brutal. Unsettling. And because we don't know anything about it, right. we're with the, I would say, the obscenity of capital punishment. Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? We're not going like, this is justified because right. this is a horrible person. Right. We're not feeling that. We're just going, oh my God, this kid, yeah. this scare kid is going to die in this moment. He said he didn't mean it. And he sounds like he's kind of dumb. Like he's not that yeah. smart when he says that stuff too. It's really unsettling. Yeah. And of course it's said in the 40s. So this is what's happening back in World War II. This is the level yeah. and the stakes that are happening. Yeah. So uh, then we're going to go off to meet the general. Mm-hmm. We meet George Kennedy. <laughs> He's great. great in the whole movie. <laughs> he plays such a nice guy. He really does. Who really clearly likes Major Reisman. That's mm-hmm. Lee Marvin's part. Yeah. Uh, and he brings him. He's taking him to the general. He says, no, this time it's serious. Right. And I want to focus on this line just for a sec. Okay. In terms of screenwriting. Because it, and the importance in this line of why it's so good is the difference between this is serious and no, this time it's serious. Right. Because no, this time it's serious, it's serious, carries with it a whole backstory. Yeah. And this time it's serious, or, or just this is serious, yeah. has nothing attached to it. Right. And so you know so much about Lee Marvin's character right from that line mm-hmm. and George Kennedy's reaction to him yeah. just from that one moment. I've always believed that Lee Marvin was one criminal act away from being one of those guys Absolutely. in the Dirty Dozen, which is why he's probably chosen to lead them, uh, and why also George Kennedy, but there is something really charming and interesting about his beliefs, like the strength of his beliefs, his convictions, that you understand the relationship with George Kennedy. Well, and he's a great soldier. Yes, he is. You know what I mean? Like, that's the thing, is that is that his, be, if he wasn't a great soldier, he would be one of those guys. Yes. But the fact that he has been, in some way, we get the sense, extremely successful yeah, yeah, yeah. in doing his completely crazy shit yeah. that people like George Kennedy are willing to fight for him and put their necks out for this guy. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and let's not skip over Robert Ryan. 
oh, who yeah. is sitting in the waiting room. Another, you know, awesome actor who was in uh, The Wild Bunch, numerous right. other films, and had established himself as a very powerful actor as well. So you have all these very strong personalities populating this film, as you said. Steve. And Robert Ryan's Colonel Green, right? Right. Yeah, I just drew a blank on his name. So Robert Ryan is Colonel Green, and you immediately see that they don't like each other. Yeah. Very quickly, like yeah. they don't get along. Again, it's that we're setting up stuff that is going to be important later in the movie. Right. So we go in to meet the general, Ernest Borgnine. Yeah. Like I said, <laughs> one of my that guy is one of my favorite actors, bar none, because I know this may sound crazy. I don't see myself as the most attractive guy in the world. So when I see, when I watch... That's crazy. No, I'm just saying. Top 10. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> when I see people like Ernest Borgnine and people say to me, oh, I'm not attractive enough to be an actor. I'm not gonna... He is someone you can look at and be like, it is possible. Steve Buscemi, it is possible. There are people who are not conventionally attractive people. And so when you come out to Hollywood, sometimes people kind of use that as an excuse for why they didn't make, oh, I wasn't good looking enough. I'm not an ingenue. Bullshit. If you got talent and you got the opportunity... Something like Ernest Borgnine is, is, should be an idol for you. Absolutely. Lee J. Cobb, another one, right? Not yeah. the most attractive people, but they have a power on screen. A, much easier for a man. Right, of course. I, I, I wasn't yeah, yeah. speaking for women. No, no, I was I know, speaking no, for no, me no. as an actor, or male actor. Yeah. And, and the other thing, too, and I know a lot of people like this. I'm sure you do, too, where yeah. there's the, oh, I need to get old enough to make the transition a character actor. Maybe. You know what I mean? Because sometimes it's like, oh, you're in the young man's world. And it's right. like, no, no, you're going to come into it. A little bit later. Yeah, but Ernest won an Oscar 1951 from Marty. Absolutely. Well, and this is the thing about this movie is that we have Oscar winners and soon-to-be Oscar winners populating our action film. Not even as the leads. They're ensemble pieces. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, that's part of what makes this so good. And Borgnine plays this great balance Mm -hmm. of being the complete hard-ass... And then later on, we kind of see, no, no, he likes this. Yeah. He, there's the public face and there's the private face for Ernest right. Borgnine. Right. And the first thing they do is they kind of tear Lee Marvin a new one. Yes. Got your service record here, Major. A lot of fireworks. A lot of transfers. One tough scrape after another. Very short on discipline. Very short on discipline. Well, you did a pretty good job in Italy. Then you lost it up by exceeding your orders, and that isn't the first time either, right? I didn't write those reports, sir. Just what is that supposed to mean? It means that I don't necessarily agree with what's in them. Maybe you'd uh, like to write your own. No, thank you, sir. I'm not very interested in embroidery, only in results. Now, you hold it right there. This war was not started for your private gratification, and you can be damn sure that this army isn't being run for your personal convenience either. And then they introduce him to this idea of this mission. Project Amnesty. You will select 12 general prisoners convicted and sentenced to death or to long terms of imprisonment for murder, rape, robbery, and or other crimes of violence and so forth. Train and qualify these prisoners in as much of the business of behind-the-lines operations as they can absorb in a brief but unspecified time. You will then deliver them secretly into the European mainland and just prior to the invasion, attack and destroy the target specified overleaf. Mm-hmm. And this is what is clearly a high concept film. Yeah. I can explain this in an elevator. A bunch of criminals on death row are assigned one chance to go on a suicide mission to save their lives. Yep. And I love his response was, it very calmly says, I say it confirms a suspicion I've had for some time now, sir. You think we might share that suspicion, Major? Yes, sir, I think you should. Since I'll have to assume that we're over here to try to win the war, 
I don't think it would pay to advertise the fact that one of the men that we're working for has to be a raving lunatic. Yeah, right. Which makes Bordine laugh for a second, but then mm. come back at him hard, which yeah. lets you know, he, like you said, he can walk that line between being a hard ass and also understanding uh, how ridiculous the situation is. Because even after the meeting is over, Bordine says, well, there's one thing we know about him. He cer- there is certainly someone up there who's absolutely crazy. Yeah. Yep, it's absolutely true. Right. And then we, it becomes very clear that he is being volunteered. Yeah. He doesn't have a choice in this. Um, we, we explain what the mission is, that we're going to attack this chateau. We have another little moment with Colonel Green. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, there's no love lost there. And, and one thing that Major Reisman gets is the, ins- the assurance that he is not going to work under Colonel Green. Right. Because that would be no good. Yeah. And this is another thing uh, that Lee Marvin has said in numerous interviews, right? He talked about how the reasons he... Like, he turned down... Uh, what was it? He turned down one of those films where he would be like... Uh, we talked about the film, and I forget what it is earlier. Oh, Jaws. Jaws. Well, no, yeah. no. There was another film he turned down where he didn't want to do it because he, it was too f- uh, friendly to the police. Oh, uh, uh, in the heat of the night. That's right. In they the heat of the considered night. him for, for the Rod Steiger part, but he said, no, this makes the police too nice. And he just had an issue with playing things that were just made the people in authority seem like they were okay. He just had a natural inclination to thumb his yeah. nose at authority. And so we see this here. The reason he took Dirty Dozen is because it, it's completely against authority the whole time. You know, even when... He, and Robert Ryan seems to be his number one focus because Borgnine escapes his stuff. Richard Jackal escapes his stuff. But uh, Robert Ryan is the focus of his end because he sees Robert Ryan as this like... Uh, I don't know what you... Like stiff... Stiff authority figure. Stiff authority yeah. figure. Exactly. Yeah. Everything by the rules. He has that big like uh, orchestra waiting for the general. Like all of it is just like there's a difference in approach. Yeah. Well, because Lee Marvin is practical. Right. We are here to kill the other side. Right. And how we do that and have being officers and gentlemen and that stuff's all bullshit. Yeah. This is the reality. And this is, it's something, it's funny. We've talked about 1967 before yeah. in terms of The Graduate. And uh, we also have an upcoming episode, which is In the Heat of the Night, as you just mentioned. Yeah. Same year, 1967. And right. this is like a watershed year in terms of Hollywood going from the old Hollywood studio system mm-hmm. to the 70s auteur world. Yeah. And what's interesting about Dirty dozen is it fits right in there it does because in my opinion and we'll talk about this a lot this is a a radical movie pretending to be a traditional hollywood movie absolutely is that absolutely you feel like this is oh this is world war ii and we're the good guys and we're gonna fight the bad guys just like we've done for the last Mm -hmm. 20 years except we're going to make fun of and and attack the institutions like the studio system mm-hmm. over and over and over again. It's it, it's like a uh, it's all camouflaged. Well, there's a great quote in history, right? You can measure uh, a civilization by how it treats its prisoners. Sure. Right. And so oh, what yeah. you see, what you see here in Dirty Dozen is you see them there. These people are in these situations, and yes, most of them are by their own hand. Others are by accidental situations, but they're still lumped into the same group with these other more real, like crazy killers like Maggot, like Telly Savalas character. We haven't even mentioned Telly Savalas. He's another fantastic actor in this thing. He's in this, and it's because this idea of what we what we think of prisoners as all being one thing. So lump them all together, and uh, it exposes the. Uh, foundations. It exposes the issues with these institutions and lets them be the mouthpieces for these for these angry uh, attacks at the institution. I right. thought it was brilliant. Right. Yeah. And right now, it's time to actually meet those prisoners. Yeah, yeah. So we go to the exercise yard and we have our prisoners uh, line up. They're not being very good soldiers at this moment because... No, because they don't have to be. Why the fuck would you be? Yeah, right. I'm going to be killed. I'm a yeah. prisoner. Like, what are you going to do to me? You're on death row. And John Cassavetes 
right from the beginning <laughs> steals the scene. It really does. He, he's like from another planet. Well, in you this can movie. see the beginnings of what he's going to do as a director and a writer, like with Faces and Woman on a Virgin Nervous Breakdown. Those, those, those films he's going to do with Gina Rollins, they're all about like this combination of dramatic improv. Right. You half the time you watch him in these films, he seems like he's out of step with everyone else because he's just doing his own thing. And yep. credit to Robert Ulrich to let him have yep. that space to do it. Well, I think any other actors like like we've talked about in a lot of uh, ensemble films, even like we talked about in Armageddon. Mm. This director has picked really good actors, and he's letting them be who they are. Yeah. And Cassavetes is just chewing the scenery. He really is. He is not Franco. having any of it. Any yeah. of it. Yeah. And, and then we have our our credits. Right. Um, Out of nowhere. Yep. It's essentially the film is a cold open. Yep. Essentially, the film yep. is a cold open, like you'd see in a TV show. It's so fantastic. And then the credits start. Yep. And, and these interesting top-down shots as we're seeing all these faces. Yeah. Um, they they one, fall two, in. Cassavetes. I love they're they're counting six, off one, two, three, seven, four, and then Cassavetes just nine, yells. Eleven. <laughs> it's just hilarious. I served with guys like that. It's well, look, you know, being under discipline. Yeah, it's not for everybody. No, no, and then some of them find those moments to do the, that's still within the box, right. of what they're being asked to do, but in a way that's rebellious. And Cassavetes just refuses to drill. He won't yeah. march. He won't anything. Lee Marvin calls him over very nicely, threatens him, right, turns his back on him on purpose. Yes, I think. on purpose. Cassavetes goes at him from behind. Lee Marvin flips him very easily. Yeah. And uh, kicks him in the face, I think. Kicks him in the face. Yeah. Yeah, and I love... It was so weird to have the shot. I forget the character actor's name was playing his MP, his second I forget his command. name, too. He's a sergeant, yeah. He's, yeah, when you yeah. see... Watch this movie again, and when you see Lee Marvin kick him, they go to him, and he is, he is almost like a... Yeah. It almost like it turns him on. Yeah. <laughs> it's really an unsettling look on his face. Yeah. And I was like, ooh. And then from that point on, yeah. everyone drills much better. Exactly. So, and I, and I have to... This might seem like a silly digression, but I have to talk about Sun Tzu. Oh, because yeah. Because there is a Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu is the great military philosopher mm -hmm. from Chinese history who wrote The Art of War. Yeah. Everyone should read it. Um, and one of the Sun Tzu stories is this, which is that there's some king and he has heard that General Sun Tzu is very brilliant and he wants him to come be a general of his armies. And he says, but first, I want to do a test. You take my 12 wives and you drill them and turn them into soldiers. And if you can turn my 12 wives into soldiers, then I'll believe that you're a great general wow. and you can take over my army. So Sun Tzu says, okay. And he has the, the, the wives line up yeah. and he says, fall in and do, you know, basically do drill. Yep. And the wives all giggle and they think this is silly and they won't really do it. Right. And then Sun Tzu says, if the orders are poorly explained, it is the fault of the general. And so I will explain all of my orders very clearly again and what's expected of, of, of you. And... And if you don't do it then, then it's going to be your fault. And so he explains everything again, and all, and he says, okay, let's drill, and all the wives kind of giggle and laugh, and they don't yeah. really do a good job. And Sun Tzu says, if the general has clearly explained his orders, and the orders are not obeyed, it is the fault of the soldiers, and he orders the, two, the, the um, king's two favorite wives to be killed. Holy shit. And they take the wives off and kill them. Wow. From that point on, all the wives drill perfectly. Yeah. And Sun Tzu becomes the general of that arm. Mm -hmm. Now, whether or not this story is true or not, <laughs> I don't know. But right. it is, in fact, exactly what happened, What Lee Marvin does in this scene. Yeah, is that he, he shows very clearly this is what the consequences are going to be. And what we're going to see from Lee Marvin, he's a great leader. Yes. He is a brilliant molder of men and mm -hmm. molder of a team. And sometimes you need a great hard-ass coach. Absolutely. Um, so now we're going to go off and meet these people individually. And yeah. the first person we're going to spend some time with is Franco. Yeah. And we find that out that Franco was like a mob guy. Yeah. And that he's in here for robbing some guy, ends up getting about 10 bucks. Yeah. 
and now he's in jail. I think he's got a life sentence. Right. And he makes his first offer. You know, you do this thing, and you probably are going to die, but there's a chance you're going to get out right. and live. Lee Marvin makes the first offer. Lee Marvin right, makes right, the right. first offer. Uh, now we go to meet Charles Bronson. Oh, man. I love his character in this. The, the love I have for Charles Bronson, just one of those guys that pops up in these films and always, always delivers this very noble, powerful performance. You know, Great Escape, yep. uh, this film, uh, Magnificent Seven, as yep. we saw him, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. There's just so many. Even all the way to Death Wish yeah. and, and his kind of crappier 80s movies. He's still the noble guy, man, and he's yeah. just fantastic. Have you seen Hard Times with uh, yes. James Colburn? Well, yeah. With the, I like the, that one a lot. Uh, the, the bare boxing. boxing? Bare knuckle yeah, boxing. Bare knuckle yeah, boxing. He's great in that. Yeah. Stacey um, Keach is in that, isn't he? Stacey Keach is in he that. plays the manager or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, and... Uh, and so the first thing we get from Bronson is, I don't like officers. Yeah. And then we find out that he was an officer, right. really briefly, mm-hmm. is that he was an enlisted man that got promoted to an officer. And in this world, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. That's a really, that shows that this guy, someone believed that this guy was a really, really good soldier. Mm-hmm. And he shot someone who was making, like basically running out on them yeah. with all their supplies. Yeah. What the hell are you talking about claimed? He was going over the hill. My outfit was pinned down by the most murderous crossfire you ever saw. Half of them bleeding to death. And this lover, he took off like a jackrabbit with all the medical supplies strapped to his back. The only way to stop him was to shoot him. And there's great Lee Marvin where he kind of leans in and goes, you made one mistake. But you only made one mistake. You let somebody see you do it. And first thing we get from this is that Lee Marvin doesn't really care about the rules. Right. And the second thing we get is there's a connection here that we're going to see grow and grow as this movie goes on. Yeah, and I, and I connect to him on that other level, too, because I was offered that when I was in the military my second year in. And I, oh, turned, yeah. it down. I turned it down because really? I didn't want to be responsible for men dying under my command. Yeah. And that was not a responsibility I felt I could do because we had just come out of the, Gulf, the first Gulf War in 91. Right. And I thought if we go back in, You're going to be else, an officer. Yeah, I'll be an officer and I'll be responsible for men. and. Having seen Heartbreak Ridge, I didn't want to end up being that nerdy kid who doesn't know what he's doing. So it's a, it's a scary thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So I get it with Charles Bronson. Yeah. Next, let's go meet Maggot. Yeah. Tommy oh. Savalas. Oh. This is the only truly evil person yes. in the movie. Yes. He is evil and insane. Mm-hmm. Which I think is on purpose, Steve. Oh, oh, I didn't yeah. mean to cut you off. What were you going to say? No, no. I didn't mean to cut Okay. Well, I think it's on purpose so that everyone else shines, right? Because you have to find a way to make the audience sympathize with these murderers and, and uh, thieves and, of course, in Maggot's case, rapists. Uh, although you never sympathize with Maggot, but you need Maggot to balance out the fact right. that these guys could be that crazy, but they're not that crazy. That well, you couldn't have crazy. these guys all be Charles Bronson's and Jim Brown's. Exactly. exactly. Is that they have to be real criminals. Right. And like, for instance, Franco yeah. is a criminal. He's a legitimate criminal. He is a criminal. He's a bad guy. Right. And he's a bad guy that we like in certain ways. Right, he's an opportunist, yeah. Maggot is a psychopath. Yes, he is. And and I wonder, too, I don't know this, but to, I wonder, too, is this the first of this kind of character the religious christian right-wing sexual deviant psychopath wow because this is a that's a hell of a box you just put it right but this is a kind of thing we see a lot in films after this there are Uh, and there is a lot of the you know right-wing conservative southern rapist psychopath that is that is a cliche now right right and i wonder if this telly savalas maggot character is the first one (sighs) that's a good question certainly one for our listeners to maybe chime in on if they want from films from the past in the 60s. And it's funny, 50s. too, having watched Tully Savalas and Kojak and a whole bunch right, of other right, stuff, right. 
man, he is doing a lot in this part. Well, that's the thing that's amazing is he's such a, a beloved guy now, you know, because from people who remember Telly Sabas, Kojak, and even the Las Vegas commercials that he used to do, which were great. Um, to see this kind of him do this kind of performance is so unsettling because he's so believable and it's really t- scary. Note perfect, yeah. my God, yeah. And and again on little screenwriting notes is that the line he has. I never rate that evil slut or any other creature. The Lord gave me that woman and told me to chastise her. That's a line with within itself. You see its own contradiction. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like mm-hmm. that. That that is a that's some good screenwriting for this character. Yeah. And Lee Marvin's last moment with him is us Southern boys got to stick together. Mm-hmm. So again, we're seeing how he's going to play. He plays each of these people really, really different. Yep. We see his manipulation skills. All the great managers do that. Old uh, coaches. Yeah. Yeah. We meet Posey, Clint Walker. Yeah. Oh, love Clint Walker. He's he's got a great. Literal solidity throughout the film. Yeah. Uh, And and then we go to meet one of my favorites, Jim Brown. Yeah. We've got to talk about Jim Brown. Okay. So I'm I'm not the sports fan that you are. Okay. But one of my favorite things in sports is watching a great running back with a ball. Mm hmm. There's nothing better than a great run for me. Yeah. And Jim Brown is among the greatest and might be in my one of my absolute favorites. It's absolutely top three running backs ever. Yeah. Watching him run. In that era, mm-hmm. it's it's like he's a different species. Mm-hmm. He is so powerful and so fast, and he knocks people down. His his ability to evade and to run right through people, yeah. and his just full out sprint speed yeah. is so far beyond anybody he's playing with. He is amazing. It's like Bill Russell when he first came into the league; everything mm. changed. Or Will Chamberlain, like everything right. changes, right? He changed the league absolutely. Guys, after him comes Gale Sayers, and it's just right. the next version of Jim Brown. Right. Every every generation, yeah, yeah. And he and what's interesting, he is. By far, I think, and you, you probably know better than me, mm. but what seems to be without question the number one football player of his era. Yes. And had totally, as you say, transformed the game. Mm-hmm. They had just won the championship. He's yep. 29 years old. He takes this job as an actor. And then when the schedule is going to interfere with his early training, he says, I'm going to be a little late to training. And uh, Paul Brown. Paul Brown says, You either come to training right now or you're off the team. Right. And he leaves football. Yep. He retires from football. Forever. One of the greatest players of all time, Mm -hmm. over a couple of days and like a $100 fine or something, says, nope. And that's the end of his career. Yep. It's it's amazing. That is crazy. And he, but I think also because he found his calling in civil rights activism, he yeah. found his like he found more purpose than in running the ball. And he'd been an amazing guy out of, coming out of Syracuse and to, to come into film. I mean, to transition from football player to actor that is not something people do. And he was so amazing at doing it. And you know, he, he to varying degrees of success, but still in this film. He is absolutely connectable and very powerful in his presentation of himself. It's not overt. He's not trying to get you to like him, which a lot of people who come out of other professions try to do as actors. They try to go over the top to get the audience to like him. He is so composed. He's making you come to him, which I think is a real confidence and a gift he has in himself. He has a solidity, and I don't mean that in terms of his physical presence, although he has an incredible physical presence. Absolutely. But he just is... It's just as you say, it's confident. Mm-hmm. He's not trying to do much. He's speaking the truth. Yep. I mean, he does a really great job in this movie. And, yeah. 
And, and what's interesting too is that it's funny because we've also recorded in the heat of the night, yep. which I think we're releasing next week. Okay, they're the same year. They both deal with race. That one really overtly races right up yeah. front with yeah. Sidney Poitier. Yeah. This one, it's much more subversive. Like we're not digging into race in yeah, a huge yeah, way, yeah. but with Jim Brown's character, he's like, "Should I have let those crackers just try to castrate, castrate me?" Mm-hmm. And then he has this line of, "That's your war, man, not mine." You don't like the crowds, Major, you fight them. Me, I'll pick my own enemies. Now that is a direct echo of Muhammad Ali, mm-hmm. no Viet Cong ever called me the N-word. Right. I mean, that is the that is clearly referencing that thing. And they were all together in this activism at that time. Absolutely. You know, to protest with Malcolm X and uh, other, uh, you know, vociferous leaders of the civil rights movement who were saying they didn't want their young black men to go over and die for a war when the real war, the real enemy, was here in the United States with how they were being treated by the government. Right. So Ali says that in 1966. And in 1967, here we are with Jim Brown echoing it. Mm -hmm. And, And what's interesting, too, is we have Lee Marvin, who literally just said to maggot us southern boys have to stick together yeah and now we have him with jim brown and it's very clear he doesn't have any racism no he really doesn't no 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 and he and now he's gonna play jim brown he says look that all might be true but you're gonna be have a date with the hangman in six days yeah and walks out on him well also jim brown play, tries to play him initially when he says well i sure is glad you says that so yeah says, like he's trying to play like he's messing with that whole idea of the white power establishment right. in that like two minute scene with Lee Marvin. It's fantastic. Yep. yep. So uh, we go to have our big meeting, all the people together. Mm-hmm. Lee Marvin says the guards out. They leave a little bit reluctantly. Um, and he explains his rules, which are basically you do everything I say, you do anything wrong, you go back for immediate execution of right. sentence. Right. Which is a pretty scary thing. Uh, Maggot asks if he has to eat with and uses again the N word. Right. A pretty quick little riot walks out and Lee Marvin just slips out of the room. Yep. Just let him be. Yep. <laughs> but this is the, they're laying the groundwork for this uh, storyline, this kind of subplot, to uh, come to its fruition later on in the movie. Yeah. Right. And Marvin, what we see over and over again is A, doesn't care about the rules. Right. B, is willing to put himself at risk over and over again. Yeah. Because we're going to go off to train, and one of the first things that the sergeant says to someone else is, uh, they go, what do you think? And he, and he says, I think the first chance one of these lubbers get, they're going to shoot the major right in the head. They think this is doomed. Right. This is not going to work. Well, of course, because they're prisoners. Yeah. And, and, and again, this talks about the pace. At the moment that we get to, now we're going to start training. It takes about 30 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. The movie is not fast. No, no. It takes yeah. its time to get yeah. everything. Yeah. But I think it's also so you get more time with these people. So you can develop the sympathy and interest and, and attraction uh, with these characters. And uh, now we start our training montage, and really what we're starting with is you have to build the camp. I think that's a really smart bit of leadership. It's classic military. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that you got to build the camp together, you got to build a team, and of course they're building all the officers and guards' quarters before they get to build their own. Right. It's a fun montage, and even in this montage, we see this little bit actor named Donald Sutherland yes. stealing the scene. <laughs> of course. When he got hired, he had one line. Wow. He was just supposed to be a nobody. He like one of these other ones one that of the are other in guys. there. Yeah, yeah that you one see line. There. That's yeah. it. He's going to die in the parachute. Maybe he was going to get his neck broken in that parachute. Well, no, we're going to get to that. There's yeah, a whole reason okay. behind that. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, he was. But you can see just that starness. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing. 
mostly don't steal the scene from the real stars. That's right. not cool. Right. But we've seen several cases where actors like Steve McQueen in uh, in Magnificent Seven yeah. doing some scene stealing that's just awesome. And Donald Sutherland is just stealing every moment he can. Yeah. To to get people look at me, look at me, look at me. He's doing. And this is classic military stuff. Like I was saying, they, they make you like we did this when we go on camp. You build your camp and you build the officers camp first because it it teaches you authority like respect for authority then you build your own because yep. if you had to build the officers afterwards you'd be lazy you right. wouldn't be quiet but a building theirs makes it mean you can build yours quicker yep. what he's saying right he says to him, it's going to start raining so you better hurry up and yep. do this kind of so there's a motivation there and and you get the com- you get that they start to build a friendship camaraderie because right. they have to work together you yeah, know. we see we see Donald talking to Franco. Yeah, Franco thinks Donald's an idiot. Yeah, we see that Bronson can speak a little bit of German because right. he's listening to the songs. Which is great. We see some moments with Maggot and how Maggot is still not fitting in with this group. Right, right, right. He is the one that's sort of the outlier. And, and who's the big dude again? What's his name? Posey. Posey. Yeah, Posey has that moment where they're trying to push stuff into the ground, and he's just kind of looking at these weaker young yep. guys doing it. And he's like, "Just let me do it." Clint Walker's a big dude. He really is. He's a big dude with a deep voice. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if he put a kind of a Native American. Well, that was the idea. On it. That was the idea. Okay. Was that yeah. he would choose a Native it. American? It's not overt, but it's there. Yeah. And uh, and during all this building the camp, we see Franco very kind of craftily mm-hmm. swipe a couple of wire cutters. And now, in the middle of the night, he's going to go out to escape. And who finds him but Jim Brown and Charles Bronson? Yeah. You're trying to get us all hung? We're all dead anyway. Don't tell me you believe that creep Reisman. Don't let that slick bum make suckers out of you. What is this, anyway? Uncle Tom Week? You come with me, we're home free. Go on that mission, we all get killed. That's what they want. That's what they want. Those idiots in there, they're gonna get chopped. Every last one of them. Men aren't even due for hanging. You, you slob, you slob. What do you think you got coming? I like two things about this. First of all, just you see the power of Bronson and Brown that's, that's compared a, to John Cassavetes. That's a hell of a one too, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is not someone you can fight. And you also like have this, you have Cassavetes and his intensity and his mm-hmm. honesty of like, you're an idiot. Why are you buying into this? I love the line, you slob, you slob. Mm-hmm. I love the repetition of that. I'm sure that's Cassavetes yeah. improvising. Mm-hmm. And then if Bronson and Brown aren't enough, who shows up but Posey? Posey. <laughs> and the reason is, of course, because what Reisman told them is you could all go back yep. for execution of sentence, mm-hmm. that you're all dependent upon each other. If one of you escapes and one of you tries to break the rules, you'll all go back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing we find out is as Franco has now been hit multiple times, he's on the ground. They're kind of picking him up and dragging him out. Who's just standing there watching? Lee Marvin. Yeah, that's right. Slipped on a bar of soap. Yeah. <laughs> Slipped on a bar of soap is an important line. I want you to know something. <laughs> don't ask, don't tell. Yeah. Has been around since the beginning of the military in some form or another. And it did not always apply to gay soldiers of or whatever. Course. It was always about like, if I don't have to, if I don't tell you, then you don't know about it. Plausible deniability, right? And that's what that moment is. It's like, and you have that because you're building camaraderie. You build, you have to let the soldiers, uh, soldier like uh, uh, govern themselves. You have to let that happen, and the lateral leaders will rise to the top yep. to lead a platoon. 
Well, and they have to have some independence. Yes. Like here's, I don't, I know I told this story recently, but I don't think it was on the cinephiles, which is, mm-hmm. I was directing one of, probably my second play in college. And it used to be when I was acting in plays yeah. that after rehearsal, all the actors would go out and you'd grab a beer or something or sure, sure. grab coffee and you'd hang out and you would bitch and moan about the director and about the whole thing. And it was always really fun. So I'm directing my play. It's like the second night of rehearsal and we finish rehearsal and we're like, okay, let's all go out. And I start to go out with them. And then I went, Oh no. Yeah, you can't. I can't go. Mm-hmm. They have to go bitch about me. Absolutely. And so and I can't be if I go there, then I ruin that opportunity because mm-hmm. I am now other. Yeah. I'm now the officer, essentially. Yeah. And they have to take care of their own thing, have their own space. Yep. I learned that when I was directing Twelve Anger Men. That's yeah. the same thing. Yeah. I want to be part of it and you just can't. Nope. Nope. Pull with your arms, pull with your legs. <laughs> <laughs> it brought such memory of me trying to get up that fucking rope in junior high. <laughs> And I can so remember the day that I figured out how to pull with my arms yeah. and pull with my legs. Actually, yeah. it's not that hard. Yeah. But man, that was some rough time getting up that rope. Yeah, I've had some rough days at CrossFit trying to do that because they have the rope climb every once in a while. And I'm just like, yeah, this is not my bag, son. Yeah, this is I, not I, my I have bag. another set of skills. Uh, and Jimenez is having trouble getting up the rope as well. This yeah. is Trini Lopez. Great Trini Lopez. Yeah, I was a singer. Yeah. Um, and uh, so what's uh, Reisman's solution? Shoot the rope out from under him with the machine gun. Yeah. Wow. He goes right up that rope. <laughs> he really does. It's great fast motion. Yeah. Very funny and well done. And then it's important that other people now have to climb this rope because yeah. what if that guy gets killed? Right. Mm. Mayonnaise. Mayonnaise. Yeah. Do you find that a little disrespectful? Uh, yeah, a little bit. A little yeah. bit? Yeah. <laughs> um, um, it's no different than the private snowball and full metal jacket, though. You have those moments. Yeah. So time to do some uh, hand-to-hand knife training. <laughs> This is my, probably my favorite scene in the movie. Yeah? You love this the scene. This scene is so good. Reisman shows up. He's got a knife. Knife's in a scabbard. Mm-hmm. He says, Who, does anyone here want to stick, stick me with this? <laughs> you see Franco kind of look up. Franco's like, <laughs> yes. Oh, Major, it's going to help the war effort. Franco, sit down. You'll get your chance. Doesn't pick Franco. No. Who does he pick? Posey. The biggest guy in the group. Mm-hmm. Why does he pick the biggest guy? Here's a show. It's like you do in the, in the prison. Like you do in prison, they say. Pick on the biggest guy. Let everybody know you mean business. Yep. Yeah. He says, don't worry. It's going to be in the scabbard. Hands of the knife. Pulls the scabbard off. Yeah. Uh, I've done a lot of knife disarms. I've never done one with a lot. No, I have one, one time with a life knife. Well, Scary. Of course it yeah, is. Yeah, I've used wooden knives. Anything could happen. Yeah. Knives are very fast and very sharp. Yes. And this is a big, strong guy who we know, and we talk about it in this scene, he, someone pushed him, and he punched a guy so hard, yeah. he drove his jawbone into a, his brain. Oh, my God. <laughs> my God, I can't even imagine. It's an so, uppercut from hell. So something I found out that's interesting is that uh, Lee Marvin, when he came to Hollywood, because he had served in the Marine, he, in addition to acting, started act, act, acting as a consult hmm. on uniforms, weapons handling, oh, okay. drill. So he would go when he was, A, when he was acting in movies, but sometimes when he wasn't, yeah. and be sort of the advisor, the military yeah. advisor. Yeah. And he served as that in this movie. And there's several things in this movie that he really hated because they were just so unrealistic. Wow. And this scene was the number one thing. Oh, wow. He thought this was a terrible idea. Nobody would ever do this. The disarm, he just didn't like it at all. Yeah. And Aldrich's reaction was like, this whole movie's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> I can't draw the line here. Is that, is that, is that if, 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 we, if we've got them, we've got them. Um, and of course, Aldr- as much as I like realism and as yeah. much as I like things that make sense, I love this scene. He's yeah. totally right. Now, what would you do if you meant to kill somebody? You think you could do it? Huh? Well, you got a knife in your hand. Now, if you had to kill somebody with a knife, you think you could do it? Um, come on, Posey, tell me. I'd rather not. What do you mean you'd rather not? I don't care what you'd rather do. Oh, come on, stick that knife in. You can do that. Come on. 
Major, I don't want to do this. Oh, come on, Posey. Just stick it right here. I mean, it won't hurt. Come on. I don't want to hurt you. You're not going to hurt me. I'm going to hurt you. Posey, stick me with a knife now. You I don't want no trouble. And what does he do? He knows that Posey doesn't like to be pushed. Look, you killed a man because he shoved you? Well, I'm shoving you. Now, come on. Let me have it. Stick him! Posey, I'm talking to you. Give it to me, Posey, or I'm going to shove you right through the wall! And you see Posey start to get mad. He's pushing him pretty hard. He is, man. And the and the dozen are starting to go, get him, get yeah. him. And they're starting Maggot, man. Maggots kill him. Come on, God, Posey, get it to him. Come on, get him. And the scene gets tenser and tenser, pushes Posey up against the wall. Posey finally lunges at him. Push Flips him, disarms him. Who's next? Right. That's a great scene. It is a great scene also because it establishes Posey as an incredibly sympathetic character. And in that moment, you, uh, you also establish Lee Marvin's beginning of affection for these guys. Because mm. in that moment, right, he's there. Mm. He's like, get up. Just get up. And he helps him up. He helps him up. Right. He does not get off of him because he says, you're all right. He checks in with him. Yep. Then he helps them up. Because what he's trying to do is show him. And he says to him, you could be a great soldier if you ever get a handle on that temper. Yeah. Right? It's trying to teach him that you could be and just as good as And I'm going to teach you how to have, nobody's going to take that knife away right. from Right. And when I teach you, nobody's going to be able to take that knife away from you. And we see this also in Heartbreak Ridge, which I brought up earlier, when mm. Clint Eastwood has to fight that Swede character when they all think they're... Because it's very reminiscent. Heartbreak Ridge is very reminiscent. Sure. It's a, of a... I don't think I've seen it since it came out. Really? Oh, it's so reminiscent of The Dirty Dozen. And so we have this scene as well in that film, too. And so it's just that moment of the grizzled veteran doing yeah. what he needs to do with these kinds of things. And so you see that here, and it's great. Well, and we see that that whole thing was a show. Yes. All of the pushing him, all that stuff, yep. that was all just a show. And the real person is going, you okay? Here, let me help yep. you up. And there's another interesting moment, too, by the way, is our sergeant. He puts his hand on his gun. Yes, he does. Because he, going on. he doesn't know what's going to happen. No. Right. That's a, it is a ballsy move it is. to hand the guy the knife. That is a... But this is, because again, this is how Lee Marvin's character works, and yep. this is what the leadership, his level of leadership is. Mm-hmm. I'm going to risk every, if I'm not willing to put everything on the line, yeah. how can I expect these guys to put everything on the line? And also, you're going to fight the Nazis face to face. It isn't across a field. So right. you can't have people who aren't ready for anything to happen. In their territory, completely overmatched with no way to get home. I mean, yep. this is like, this is serious. Yep. Uh, we have brought in a psychiatrist. <laughs> this is such a this is such a weird scene, which I think Armageddon ganked having that when they were doing that with the mm, uh, psychiatrist. Yes, totally, totally. I think it's completely You're absolutely out of that. Right. Yeah, yeah, You're yeah. absolutely, absolutely right. It's such a weird thing to bring a psychiatrist, but this is the beginning of this kind of thing in the '60s, right? So they put it in the '40s, the setting of the which is really strange, and it's interesting to see it happening in this film. Yeah, I love Bronson's response to uh, the the free association of words. Yes. For instance, if I were to say. Um, Happiness, you might say children. I wouldn't say that. (laughs) Well, that was just an example. But if I said ambition, what would you say? I wouldn't say anything. (laughs) Well, uh, let's give it a try, okay? Weapon. Baseball. Knife. Dodges. Officer. Pitcher. You, uh, You seem to be thinking about just one thing, aren't you? Yeah. What are you thinking about? It's in baseball. It's <laughs> in all just baseball. baseball. Right? And what's so funny too is that what you see in that scene is Bronson's intelligence. It's right. like I know what game you're playing. I'm not going to play your game. Right. I'm going to act perfectly dumb and and confusing to you so as you so you're not going to analyze me. Right. It's great. It's exactly what Buscemi does when yeah. he's like, what do you want me to compare bread pan a bed pan what do we have brain pans or whatever he says? It's the same thing. Yeah. Yep. Kind of playful, yeah. Yeah. 
and the psychiatrist, the one thing he says is maggot is the worst. Yes, of course. Yeah, he's a true psychopath. You don't, have to, you don't yeah. have to be a psychiatrist to get that answer. Yeah, we, we were pretty clear on that. <laughs> yeah, and, and this is one of the interesting little conceits of the film is he says, let me get rid of him. And Lee Marvin says, no, this is one time the army is going with the original team. Yeah. This is a terrible choice. <sighs> I mean, it's going to end up being a terrible choice, clearly. Yeah, eventually. But he needs it. Why does he need maggot? He needs maggot so... It shows the other guys, like, it makes the other guys feel like, look, I ain't as bad as him. As bad as yeah. I am, I ain't as bad as him. You always need one in the group. You yeah, always but he's got do. Franco. I mean, yeah, but was, Franco is Franco's like harmless in right. his, because like yeah. I said, he was only robbing. This guy raped a woman, and viciously, probably. Right. And so he lets the other soldiers feel like they have some nobility in some subconscious way, because they're not as bad as he is. Yeah. Well, while the psychiatry is going on, we got some training. We do a little judo throw. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jimenez is having some problems throwing Franco. <laughs> Franco says, "Here, let me show you. Do this," and he just slams Jimenez in the ground. Yeah, poor who, who walks up? Who walks up? A posy. Yeah. You want me to do that to you? Yeah, right. <laughs> Whatever his line is, bigger size, bigger size. And I love, I love Cassavetti's reaction. It is so funny. <laughs> He's sort of, no, hey, 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 we're all good here. Everybody <laughs> likes each other. And you see his essential, he's a great character. Yep. Because he is aggressive and uh, loud-mouthed mm-hmm. and wimpy mm-hmm. and smart and funny. And he's playing all sorts of different games. I served with a guy like that named Zangi. His name was Zangi. Zangi. He was also from New York, also Italian. And he was just like Franco in, in more extreme ways in every way that Franco is in this movie. And it was mm. unsettling. Mm. Yeah. Wow. You have them in the military, man. You know, not the most intelligent people go into the military. Some people do it as a last resort for whatever reason. Well, and it's funny, too, because like you mentioned, we've mentioned Armageddon. Yeah. And you mentioned Heartbreak Ridge. Yeah. And another movie that really draws from this is Stripes. Oh, yes, absolutely. Stripes is exactly this structure. And in Stripes, you have Francis. Right. Who Lighten is up, Francis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that, if, I mean, there really is, there's the same kind of three-act training, yeah. uh, war game, Real mission structure yeah. in stripes. Except they kill their sergeant in stripes on accident, or a sergeant dies on accident. Well, he comes, he doesn't die because he comes back. Oh, that's right. He comes oh, back in the third act. That's right. I forgot. Um, that. War notes, right? Isn't that the actor's name? I think it's War notes. Oh, maybe somebody clear that. But up. this is not a stripes cinema. No, no. <laughs> this might be all you ever get on stripes. <laughs> unless, unless you donate to the Patreon. Unless you donate to our Patreon and then, page, and then put that as one of the possible choices. It's possible. <laughs> um, Lee Marvin, the big concern he has now is they're kind of coming together as rugged individualists, yeah. but we don't have a team yet. Right. What are we going to do to get a team? And we go out, and Franco is refusing to shave. Yep. How am I supposed to shave in cold water? That's your problem. You're in the field now. Where are you going to get hot water in the field? The guy's got hot water. You got hot water? You're in the field, right? That's tough. That's right, Byron. How come you guys have hot water and we don't? Man, you, you keep right. quiet. You keep your big mouth shut. We ain't shaving in cold water. Uh, you want us to shave in cold water? Why don't you shave in cold water? That's right. And what's interesting, too, is Franco's refusing to say, he says, and Lee Marvin says, everyone who's refusing this order, step forward. Right. And Franco steps forward all on his own, and one by one, all of the other guys step forward. Which they do a great job of laying the groundwork on, because when Franco starts to get mad about it, initially, the guys first react like, oh, here we go again. Yeah. But then, I think it's Jim Brown who says, like, Franco might actually be right. right about this one. And then that's when it leads to Lee Marvin, who is sitting irritated on yeah. the other side of the of the wall and then comes out and has that moment. Yeah. Right. And they all unify. And one of the key moments, as mm-hmm. you say, it's, is that we see just through a look and a line, mm-hmm. Jim Brown, 
and Charles Bronson emerging as leaders yeah. of this group. Yes. And again, this is why I say this movie is subtly subverse, subversive, is that in the heat of the night, which we're going to talk about, mm-hmm. is that race is right up at the forefront, and yes. you have a whole community who doesn't trust Sidney Poitier because of the color of his skin. Right. In this movie, Maggot is a racist. Other than that, no one cares. Right. In that, in that Charles Bronson looks to Jim Brown as he's the other leader in this group. Yeah. Immediately. Mm-hmm. From the moment they stop Franco from escaping. Yeah. And they treat each other as equals and friends. Yeah. And that is a totally different thing from what we're seeing anywhere else, I think, in mm-hmm. the world of film at this time. Yeah. Um, and Jim Brown, of course, I mean, he earns it. Yeah, you know? he does. Yeah. And, and Lee Marvin, as he walks away, his reaction to this is, boy, do I love that Franco. <laughs> and now we have one of those times in movies where we say the title of the film in oh, the movie. Oh, God, it's so terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. I just think this should be a rule yeah. that unless it really works, please just, you don't have to say the title of the film. Or it's a musical song. Sure, that's fine. Yeah. That's fine. But in general, going, oh, you dirty dozen. I think he even had a trouble saying it because yeah. you can tell that shot. He's like, you... Dirty dozen. Like yeah. when they said Rogue One and Rogue One, I was like, Ugh. don't say it. Don't, don't just, say it. Leave it. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. I really think that comes from that's got to come from some executive. <laughs> I'm sure. It I is. mean, it, maybe it doesn't. But but like, it just seems to me like is there any way you could say the title? Yeah, of the movie in I'm the movie? sure it was. Man. I'm worried that people won't understand that the dirty dozen refers to the dozen criminals. Could you please say it? <laughs> just like that. Executive sounds just like that. In the that's 60s. how executive sound <laughs> in the 60s. That's, right. <laughs> that's exactly it. Um, <laughs> This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hello, Cinephiles fans. You know, we all kind of walk around with these stressors, big, small, medium in our lives that are triggered sometimes by frustrations at work or frustrations at our job or just frustrations overall about our life. Because sometimes, you know this, if you compare, you despair, and you just want to live a life that's a little bit more clean and accepting of yourself and a little more open to receiving positive messages for yourself so you can have that life that you want to live and have that great work-life balance, and it's not always easy. And for me, for years and years, I thought all of this stress, all of this hardship, I had to just carry on my own, that this is what it meant to be a man. And it was finally getting therapy where I realized, like, oh, I don't have to carry that stuff. There's a place where I can unburden myself and actually get advice and guidance about how to deal with it better in the future. Yeah, Steve, you and I have spoken very proudly about how therapy has helped both of of us deal with our stressors in our lives. And if any of you are listening to us who are thinking of starting therapy, well, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you have to do is to fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge if things aren't working out, which I think is a great benefit. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Cinephiles today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. Now it's time we're going to move camps and we got to go really into the area of Colonel Green. Yeah. And oh, so, geez. and he does, Lee Marvin does not want to deal with Colonel Green at all. So no. he says, look, just, just get him on my back. Tell him we have a general with us or something. Yeah. That might've been the wrong thing to say. He had no idea <laughs> that Green was going to do this. Yeah. Um, and I, this scene is fantastic. It this really is. This is the other great scene in the film, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. is that Colonel Green 
here's there's a general coming so right. naturally he's gonna throw a big welcome he has his best troops and their best uniforms yeah. and he has a marching band playing john philip souza imagine you're gonna put that in at this point I will. you don't like <laughs> my singing i know i love your singing well now i, I have to put both I, in <laughs> i'm a massive uh fan of that song oh it's great yes. souza there's nothing like souza yeah there really isn't <laughs> This is good comedy. And this mm-hmm. is what's interesting about this movie. We started with a hanging. Yes. And now we're into full comedy. Yeah. This is a funny scene. But but it's, it's um, what do you call it? Comedy of, uh, I don't know what the word is, Steve. Maybe establishment comedy? Like, it's comedy where you have both people entrenched in their situation slamming into each other. I don't know what kind of comedy that's called. I'm not I don't know if there's a comedy. word for that. We can call it collision comedy. Sure, sure. That's, that works. We've now invented that. Copyright Cinephiles <laughs> 2017. There we go. But like Charles, I mean, uh, uh, Lee Marvin stumbles into this situation, yep. but Robert Ryan is trying to do what he thinks is best right. because that's how you would do it in the military because to show he's, respect. He's a natural kiss-ass. Exactly. Of, yeah. Exactly. Um, an, an establishment guy. Right. And I love they're pulling in. They're, they got all the dirty guys in the back of the truck. And there's Lee Marvin. It's like, sounds like we're going into a party. Yeah. You don't think it's for us, do you? <laughs> <laughs> so so we show up. Yeah. Uh uh, Robert Ryan, Colonel Green wants to see the uh, the general, mm-hmm. hoping that he will inspect the troops. Yeah. This scene was ones. originally supposed to be for Posey, Clint Walker. Oh. And Clint Walker turned it down. What? He said, well, I'm playing a Native American. They're supposed to be very dignified. And this, would not, this scene would not be dignified. Wow. And so I will not do it. Wow. Yep. That's and amazing. Aldrich looked around and he saw this guy that had been kind of stealing scenes and he said, Donald Sutherland, you want to do it? And this scene makes him a star. Yep. There, there, this scene, and, and uh, Robert Altman says, this is what got him mashed. Well, Robert Ulrich. No, Robert Altman. Altman. Said, this got is what mashed? got him mashed. Oh, this wow. scene is what made him Hawkeye Pierce and Oh, interesting. Yeah. He's great. This scene is so funny. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because the character that they created for him when you first see him is this really dumb guy. He's yeah. playing really dumb. Mm-hmm. This guy, who goes and does not Spectre Crew, is not a dumb guy. No. They're very pretty, Colonel. Very pretty. But can they fight? Yes, sir. Now, if you're right. The, com- the levels of comedy are so good. <laughs> Where are you from, son? Madison City, Missouri, sir. Never heard of it. Yeah, he's, his face changes <laughs> in disappointment. It says never, and the poor guy is like deflated by the general not like knowing where he's from. And I love Brilliant. very pretty Colonel, very pretty. Yeah, but can they fight? <laughs> it's just, it's so. It yeah. is a star making two minutes of film, right? And it's probably and it probably fits in this guy's wheelhouse as a dumb guy because he's probably seen the generals do these ex- say these exact kind of things to other soldiers, exactly. And so he's just imitating what he's seen before yep. and enjoying the rare power trip that he has. In what's probably his life is never going to happen <laughs> no, again. This is this yeah. is he's peak. Well, we know. Well, right, you're, you're right. Clear. Good point. Yeah. This is his peak. <laughs> he's points. not going to be around that much longer. Yeah, that's true. Um, and then the end i love colonel green confronts reisman about what the hell's going on yeah. reisman's response you know i always thought you were stiff and and cold but you're really quite emotional aren't you <laughs> it's so horrible yeah it is um and and you just look at reisman you go like why are you such a like i understand what you why are you such an asshole right like if you could bring it back a little bit it might help you but i might push back against this steve because like it's two sides of the same coin right you need 
establishment people to have anti-establishment people uh, yeah. because anti-establishment people need to find something to rebel against establishment people need it because it, it, it they need the social constructs very uh, rigidly drawn out because that's the only way they can function because that's probably how they were raised and so oh, you sure. have you have so i mean i don't think colonel green is wrong in what he's doing but i think they both just are natural enemies and there's one way to do it one not way to do it which is comes up later when they have their war games that the unconventional way of thinking can sometimes undercut the conventional way of thinking and may be more useful in certain situations. And what you have here in this moment is two clashing ideologies. But to Lee Marvin's credit, to, to Robert Ryan's credit, Lee Marvin does say to Donald Sutherland, you ever pull that shit again, I'll break you in half. That's him saying to him also, just like uh, Robert Ryan, like his form of discipline to Donald Sutherland is a different form of discipline, but it's no less rigid. So what's interesting, by the way, yeah. about your whole point is that you thought I was calling Colonel Green an asshole. Oh. I was calling Reisman an asshole. Is that is that? Oh, you're calling Lee Marvin an asshole. Yeah, but but what's interesting is they're both true. Yeah, both points are perfectly true. Okay. Which is because what you your point is exactly right. Because yeah. we actually without an establishment there is no army. Right. Like you, we yeah. have to we have to have rules. Of course, we have to have organization. We have right. to have real communication. There's a line in Lawrence of Arabia where Lawrence says he's come back to uh, General Allenby yeah. and he's in the outfit oh, yep. and Allenby saying you exceeded your authority in all these ways and Lawrence says well isn't a officer in the field supposed to use his ingenuity at all times and Allenby says no 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 it's far too dangerous <laughs> and Lawrence and Lawrence says I know and Allenby says you've learned that already and and I think that's a great moment yeah. of the idea of no no we actually need to obey all the rules right and in this context you need Reisman who goes fuck all the rules yeah but it, what I was saying was that at this moment him calling Colonel Green emotional like that you went dude you went just you don't have to go that far yeah you're right i agree he's digging the knife in absolutely yeah. so you can cut my whole thing out if no you no want. no i liked Are it all right? i okay, think it was okay. all good discussion okay, cool. we'll, we'll keep that all in <laughs> um we have to go to the bathroom and colonel green wants to find out what the fuck is going on right and he sends his two big guys one of whom has a voice even deeper than posies yeah these <laughs> two possible. very recognizable red-headed guys yeah. uh and they find charles bronson and they kind of kick the shit out of him yeah they do to find out what's going on listen Buster. keep your hands off me now take it easy just want to ask you a few questions questions huh? hold him hold him you son of a in the guts or don't you and um charles bronson doesn't talk nope doesn't have his dog tags doesn't say his name doesn't say a serial number yep he holds to what he has to do yep until income Posey and Jim Brown. Jeez. And again, you don't want to fight these guys. <laughs> Jim Brown using his helmet as a weapon oh, twice. Man. One to stop the hand from punching him and the second to hit the dude in the chest and in the face. Yeah. Madness, man. And again, like you because in my brain, I'm yeah. picturing Jim Brown running through a yes, football field. Yes. And going, man, you don't want that guy coming at you with a hunk of steel. Like, man. Yeah, if I was a stunt guy on that, I'd be like, can we make sure we get every one of these beats be right? Really, let's be I, real careful here. Yeah, right. And uh, what do they say when they're taking, beating up uh, Charles Bronson out of the bathroom? Slipped on a bar of soap. Slipped on a bar of soap. Yeah. Because, and this is one of the great fucked up things in the movie, mm -hmm. they believe that Major Reisman sent these guys yep. to test them. Yep. Which isn't true. Colonel no. Green sent them. Mm -hmm. But they think it's Major Reisman. Yeah. And, and there's this line of, I'd rather trust Hitler. 
So at this point, they have become a team. Yeah. But they are a team united against Lee Marvin. Yep, absolutely. So we're not quite there yet. Nope. Practice our parachute jump. And now Lee Marvin believes they deserve a party. <sighs> Brings yeah. him some booze. Yeah. Backs a big truck up mm-hmm. <laughs> to the door. And who comes out but a bunch of uh, lovely working girls? Sure. Um, prostitutes, you would say? One might say prostitutes. Escorts? Uh, yeah. Professionals? Sure, professionals. Um, and there is the longest stare <laughs> between the, our dirty dozen, our dirty, smelly, yeah. hairy guys, yeah. and these women. It's just hilarious. Yeah, it is. But I think also that's why you he kept Maggot. I think in some way he knew yeah. he was going to have this night, and he needed, he needed somebody on guard duty who was going to be not want to partake in this. Well, and I think we have to separate why does the character of Major Reisman choose to keep Maggot and why does the movie choose to keep Maggot? Ah, uh, good point. The movie keeps Maggot for obvious reasons. Right. Because he's dramatic and interesting throughout the film. Right. Major Reisman, whether or not he made a good choice is where I ha- kind of have a problem. That's fair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but definitely dramatically because Maggot is up in the guard post yeah. go yelling, I don't know, I don't remember what Strumpets. he's yelling. Strumpets! Yeah, yeah, I see all this yeah, I'll cut it in. Yeah. <laughs> I saw those filthy strumpets! You're turning this place into a bottomless pit of vice. One thing I noticed that's just, it's a totally small thing. Yeah. There's no black prostitute. No. Which means what the movie is saying is that Jim Brown has sex with a white woman in this movie. Sure. Now, it's not made a point of. Right. But in 1967, that is a big deal. Well, also, there's only eight of them for 11 of them. We're sharing. So we're sharing. Hopefully they handled that really well. (laughs) I feel like they went to the next morning, so I think they did. Yeah. And they had that moment where Franco dances with one of them, mm-hmm. the prettiest one of them all. And dan- well, of course, Franco, that's exactly what he would do. Yeah. Uh, and helms for her to start the whole process. Yeah. 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 It's a very funny scene. Yes. Um, it's the next morning, I think. Um, and who shows up but Colonel Green and yeah. he push with a whole bunch of men and he pushes his way into the camp yeah. um, and he gets pulls the guys out. We have them under fire and now they're kind of back to being the same sort of we're not listening to orders very well mm-hmm. guys right and there's this moment with jim brown where he says wait for it yeah and this is where we see again he's one of the two leaders he mm-hmm. and charles bronson are the two leaders of yep. this group yep. and it's at that moment that charles bronson notices the two red-headed guys that beat him up are with colonel green yeah and that's the moment that he realizes that major reisman is not the one that set him up, that in fact it was Colonel Green. This right. is a really key moment. Yeah, and agreed. you have a very funny little telephone tag that goes down the, the line as they explain, oh, those are the two guys that beat up Charles Bronson. Yeah, it's they really make it funny. All the, and then Telly Savala says that moment, he looks, <laughs> he's about to say it to Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson gives him a, yeah, I fucking know look, I know. which I love that. Yeah. Lee Marvin arrives, sneaks around the back, and this is where Cassavetes speaks up. Yeah. And he's great in this scene. This man is now going to demonstrate the proper procedure for shaving and bathing in the field. Yes, sir. Right, soldier? No, sir! No, sir, what? No, sir, I am not going to shave, sir! Again, we have... He is so important in this movie. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, got an Oscar nomination for it. Yeah, Yeah. not surprised. Not surprised. Yeah, he's great. And what Lee Marvin does is open fire. Mm -hmm. Now, you served in the military. Yes. Somebody opening fire with a live weapon... Towards a group of people, yeah. How do you think that goes over? That's not. That's frowned upon. <laughs> it's a little bit, I think. right? Even when we do our war games at night, you're supposed to shoot like 
40 feet above or 20 feet above the heads with the live rounds of the people. Because I did that. That was insane at night. Yeah. Where tracer fire is shooting above you. Literal bullets are being right. shot. And you're depending on these people who are shooting 20 feet above your head to keep it above your head. Yeah. So you can, because you can low crawl and all those things you're doing through the mud and whatever. So it is an unsettling situation. Have you ever fired a weapon on full auto? Yeah. Um, hard to control. Yes, very hard to control. It's because this is the other thing is Lee Marvin is firing, you know, four feet away from yes. Colonel Green. Yeah. Like that is a really dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we assume obviously Lee Marvin's super soldier right, in right, this right. movie. We don't have a sense that he's not in control, but this is a big fucking deal. But it also increases his level of anger towards uh Absolutely. Green. It's just increasing per scene. Well, and in and, and Green's mind, this man is, should be arrested. And you mean, can make a case that he's right. He is right. Yes. In all, like, this is, goes back to your earlier yeah, yeah. point of this in the establishment. There is no question that Reisman should be stripped of his command and court-martialed. Absolutely. And he fired on, he fired, not only did he fire on a superior officer. Right. I mean, that's fucking crazy. Right. But then he also has his men disarm everybody else and do so roughly. Yes, he does. Hit him where it hurts. Mm-hmm. And they, it's, but, but in watching the movie, we're having a ball. Right. They're having a great time. Um, and it was something I was thinking about. Uh, watching this is that, and this relates again to your earlier point, mm-hmm. is that in America we have this weird split, and I really think that America exists in this split between the Puritans and the rebels. That's fair. That is what our culture is based mm-hmm. on. There's one half of American culture which is from that Puritan, do everything the right way, yep. you know, clean speech, no sex, no swearing, like the, the sort of be within the rules of society. Right. And we have a strong rebellion streak. I mean, our country started with a rebellion, the Old West, all of that. Like, we love rebels. And Colonel Green and Major Reisman are perfect examples yep. of this. Yep. Green is the Puritan. Reisman is the rebel. Absolutely. Ernest Borgnine is not pleased. Tears him a new one. Yeah. Um, but Reisman just believes my soldiers can beat any of his soldiers any day. Yeah, and Reisman also puts himself on the line because Borgnine wants to push, wants to bust the soldiers back down into the prison. Right. And Reisman says, no, it was my decision, my fault. They didn't make this decision. Yeah. I did. So if you want to punish him, you want to punch me. That's a great point. That's yeah. a really, which, really important which point. Which is, once again, we have the establishment of his connection to these guys. And he's willing to, like you said, he's not going to do anything that he, he not going to ask them to do anything he wouldn't do. And in this moment, he is sacrificing himself for... Uh, the other soldiers so that they don't get in trouble because of what he did to make sure they they had some kind of payment right. for all the work they've been doing. Well, and uh, in addition to that, even though he is a rebel who doesn't yep. care about the rules, yep. he has a code of honor. Yes, absolutely. A very big, very important code of honor. Mm-hmm. But but we still have this thing of like, I think my soldiers can can beat his soldiers. Mm-hmm. And Borgnine's like, well, if it's too bad there's no way to do it. And George Kennedy, uh, excuse <laughs> me, sir, maybe, maybe there is a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's the guy who suggests, who kind of starts the idea of there's this war game coming up right. and he's kind of hinting it at Reisman and finally Reisman picks it up. And I love the fact that there's a rising sound of an air raid signal throughout this scene that's sort of just building tension in the Great background. Points. It's just a little, little thing. Great point, Steve. But what I mean is, uh, General, uh, you recall next week we've got divisional maneuvers down in Devonshire? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Colonel Breed's outfit will be part of that exercise. As a matter of fact, one of his companies has been assigned the defense of divisional headquarters. So? Uh, so? So, you let my 12 men act as an independent unit attached to the opposing force. And they'll knock out Breed's headquarters and catch his entire staff. <laughs> that I'd like to see. So would I. 
<laughs> and now we're going into finally into our next act, mm-hmm. which is war games. Yep. This is a very fun sequence. It really is. And, you know, you wear the, the band. All that stuff is absolutely true. It's, you, you fight, you know, you wear the color bands and you, you move around the, the area that they give you and you do all those things you're supposed to do. And what's really great about this is this, the level is, enough, is, is higher here because they're trying to prove a point. So once again, you have Colonel Green uh, with his idea of how things are supposed to go. Right. And then you have the unconventional process of Reisman's men who are undermining the entire point of, the, of a useless exercise, which is just to be like, you stay on your side, we stay on our side, then we face each other, here's where you're supposed to shoot, here's where you're supposed to do that, which of course is never how it goes in war. And so they're kind of messing with this whole establishment again yep. in their own way. Well, two things. I'll, one and thing successfully. I'll add, of course. Yep. One thing I'll add is you said they're here to pr- prove a point. And I, I would put, push it even farther than oh. that because for these guys, their lives are literally on the line. That's a great point. You know, it's like, so, so fuck the rules. Yeah, right. Why would, and we see what they're willing to do stuff that regular soldiers wouldn't be willing right. to do, like be under live fire. Because yeah. they're risking death anyway. Right. Um, and, and the thing, too, it's, there's always been a tension between what I would call the concept of honorable war mm-hmm. and total war, mm-hmm. and which is kind of what you bring up. Is, and that one of the things that happened in World War I, that's one of the real deaths of honorable war. Yep. And as we get through World War II, and now the time that this is being made is in the Vietnam era. Right. And we're seeing the difference between Vietnam era thought about military and World War II era thought. Yeah. Because the how the uh, units are used and how masses of troops are used and what we consider to be okay in war is changing. It's yeah. really in flux. Yeah. And they and they go, they like, well, we're gonna have a blue arm band when we want to have a blue arm band and a red arm band when we have a red arm band. Yeah. We don't care about the rules of this game. Right. And it's interesting because who are they gonna be? They're gonna be commandos who are gonna be dressed up in German uniforms. Yeah. And so this is they are doing what they are training to do. This is a dry run. This is a dry run. Yeah. And I love too, by the way, when they drive in at one point and they just wave. Yeah. And the wave and I'm telling you, I've used the power of the wave so many times. You know, I, I legally shot on the Universal Backlot once. Oh. Yeah, when we did Siren. Yeah. And and security went by, and I just waved at them. Yeah. And they waved at me, and they left. <laughs> the wave is really a powerful thing. If yeah. you have confidence, you know, you just yeah. go, hey, hey, John. Yeah. It'll, it'll work out. I do, that to, I do that to police all the time. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. Like, when they drive by, I'm always, like, waving, or I give yeah. them a what's up. Yeah. That way, you're just like, I, please don't pull me over. I don't have any problems. Well, and it's like, no, I'm good. I like you. We're, yeah. yeah, yeah we're, we're, I respect I, your authority. I'm if, good. If you, do the, if you do the stone cold stare, don't look at them, don't look at them, yeah. you look suspicious. Of course. Yeah. Um, and the interesting thing, too, we change armbands. We find Lee Marvin. We've got a Jeep. Mm-hmm. Lee Marvin says, where'd you get the Jeep? And they say, oh, we stole it. Like, we're going to steal everything else. <laughs> you got to love these guys. Yeah. They're great. Um, we see the uh, Borgnines in the field. Yeah. Just to make things a little bit more complicated. There's this moment that we just mentioned where they know there's going to be uh, howitzer fire on right. this ridge, right. and they time it so they run down the ridge under the fire so mm-hmm. that nobody sees them, which yeah. is fairly scary. It is absolutely scary. Yeah. yeah. And it's very clear who's in charge. Yeah. Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson. Yep. And he, then Jim Brown in yeah. the ambulance with that situation. Yeah. Too. yeah. Is that Charles Bronson's the, the, the top officer, mm-hmm. and Jim Brown's maybe the next person? Yep. Yeah. Um, and right from the beginning, Borgnine, you can see he's starting to suspect. He's starting to suspect, and he fully suspects when he sees them handing those, uh, uh, what is those, detonators or whatever they are to each other? What is those? I think so. Yeah. So we turn over a car. Uh, we blow it up. We get some ketchup on us. We get some bandages on us. And we go to <laughs> Colonel Green's headquarters saying there's been a horrible accident. Right. We have permission to call an ambulance. 
at the same time, and that's with Charles Bronson with Posey. And at the same time, uh, Jim Brown goes off and waits in ambush for the ambulance to drive by. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. ambush the ambulance, and of course, the doctor in the ambulance says, "But we got a bad accident out here, sir." That's uh, too bad because you just became prisoners of war. But it's not a gag, sir. There's a real casualty there. Jim Brown's have nothing of it. And, and they steal the ambulance. Crumples up the orders. Yeah. So when they steal the ambulance, I love when the ambulance driver says, but you have red armbands. And Jim Brown says, yeah, we're traitors. <laughs> yeah, just no big deal. It's a great moment. Yep. And at this moment, and Borgnine is in the headquarters and he's watching these wounded men. And you can see these little looks mm-hmm. where he's starting to go, what's going on here? Starting mm-hmm. to get suspicious. And then there's this moment that you talk about where they start handing stuff out. Mm-hmm. And I love Borgnine. It's like just kind of smiles and goes. And laughs. And laughs. And like, okay, I've seen enough here. Yep. yep. And heads out. Uh, ambulance shows up. And, and funny, it's for the final moment as they pull the ambulance up and they're about to take over Colonel Green's headquarters. Did you notice what music started playing? No. John Philip Sousa. Ah, the same music that Green nice. was playing before. And we finally take over the right. headquarters just like they promised. To a laughing George Kennedy. Yeah. Who hobbles over hoping he hasn't missed it. What's so funny is <laughs> we didn't mention, but George Kennedy gets is, is the observer mm-hmm. and he gets pushed off of the ambulance. Yeah. When someone pushes me off of a moving car, <laughs> I don't show up laughing. <laughs> yeah, but I think he has the subversive streak within him. It's just, oh, he loves it. It's just not, he's not as powerful with it as Lee Marvin is. Like, no, he can't, do it, but he, can't, he right. can't do it, but he likes it's it. It's there, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So they've succeeded. Yep. And which means, of course, they get to go on this horrible mission that's super dangerous. Yeah, so lucky now them. we're ready for the mission. Yeah. yeah, so we're finally gotten to the mission. And now we kind of have the final solidity of Lee Marvin is now part of the group. Yes. Because he says, look, they were about to kill you yeah. if you hadn't won. So I'm really glad you did. Yeah. You know, and now we recite, recite this poem that we're going to hear over and yeah. over again of what the plan is. Yeah. One. God of the robots, we've just begun. Two. The guards are through. Three. And it gets repeated and repeated. And that repetition takes us right onto the plane Mm -hmm. where we're going to parachute down to go on the the mission. Yeah. Jump out of the plane. One of the guys dies. Yeah. What what is that all about? You said you had a story about that. Uh, He left the show. He left the movie. He quit. What? Because he wanted to go. He had like a because he's a musician. Right. And he had a a tour. It was Trini? Was it Trini? Trini dies? Yeah. Yeah. He had a tour date. Had to go. Yep, and so he just left, and and, and so and so they. That's why they added that because he uh, actually. Well, that wasn't supposed to happen that way. Oh, I he it was not on purpose. He was supposed to be on the mission, right. but they they said, okay, fine, you're dead. Yeah, and they killed him off. So one of the interesting things that happens when they go off on the attack, the first Germans we see are these two guys guarding a a, mm-hmm. a gate post or mm-hmm. a, a what's it called? Yeah, guard post. A guard post. Yeah, yeah two yeah. guys guarding a guard post, and they're talking about just ordinary stuff. Yep. I think that's really important because we're not going to actually feel good about this mission. No, this is what's fantastic about the movie. We're killing Nazis Yep. by uniform. Yep. But it's really interesting that they try to humanize, humanize them in certain moments. And in other moments, of course, they make them villains throughout this whole mission. And those two guys are just low-level just dudes. Schlubs. Schlubs who were just they're like man in the guard post. That and doesn't gets, mean they didn't kill. They don't mean they're not racist against Jews or whatever. But in that conversation, you don't get that feeling. And they have no chance. This isn't a fair right. fight. They get stabbed in the back. That's yes. it for them. Another A car pulls up. Charles Bronson, who is in now German uniform yeah. along with Lee Marvin, walks yeah. up and very calmly shoots all 
all the people in the car with a gun with a silencer. Yep. This is this is execution. Yep. This is not war. Mm-hmm. You know, and and it's funny. These are our heroes, but it isn't like this is why I say like this is a subversive movie. Yeah. It feels like you're in just a World War II good guy bad guy movie. Right. But it actually isn't. Yeah. 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 And the mission could have been carried out way easier, but isn't. No. Which is interesting. Yeah. No, it's going to get pretty tough. Right. We hear, as the first time we see the chateau, we hear Deutschland über alles. Yeah. This chateau was totally built for the movie. And they actually built it so well that they couldn't blow it up. <laughs> so they only they had to build other fake chateau to blow up at the end of the movie. Right. Because sometimes those construction guys, man, they want to do too good a they job. They do a really good job. Yeah. So they, Donald's going to be a guard. So he's kind of out in the open. Right. Um, we have some, we see everyone kind of set up. We have some guys in the bushes. We have Posey and I think his name is Bravo who yeah. are on the machine gun. Um, and we have Lee Marvin and Charles Bronson in their German uniforms. Yep. Having to go up and knock on the door and yeah. go inside. Yeah, this seems very stressful. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the things we see very quickly is that Lee Marvin. It doesn't seem like he speaks German. No, no. I would have learned a little German. <laughs> you know, you had some downtime while you were training him. I mean, you you know, you're training all of them. You should yeah. be training yourself a little bit. Agreed. But Charles Bronson speaks perfect German. He gets a little bit flummoxed by the signing in. Has a great moment where he knocks the ink over. Right. And uh, they Posey really does have Donald Duck in the machine gun, which mm-hmm. is something they kept talking about. Mm-hmm. And where is Donald Duck? Donald Duck's down at the crossroads with a machine gun. He better not be asleep, or we'll all be in trouble, huh? And, and this is one of the things, and I know I've said this over and over again on this show, something that has been lost in today's movies is the slow tension build. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we're so, it, it's so important to get to action mm-hmm. that we don't have a lot of tension. Right. And this has maybe too much, I would say, mm-hmm. a lot of slow tension build. Yeah. We're putting all of our pieces in the place. It's really stressful. Yeah. And, and part of what I think helps is that although we've heard the plan multiple times, we don't actually understand it. Mm-hmm. We don't really know what the, exactly how they're trying to do what they're trying to do. Uh, Bronson and Lee Marvin, they get their room. They've checked into the hotel. They're going up there. And we could tell in this scene that they have become friends. Yes. You know what I mean? There's definite mutual respect here. Well, he used to be an officer. Yeah. So there is a connection. There. Yeah. Well, I think it's more than that. I think he's, he, they think the same way. There's uh-huh. a competency there. Right. Um, one, th- one other thing I was thinking about, by the way, because this is just true throughout history. Man, when, when an army takes over a country, because we're in France now, mm-hmm. the generals sure pick out the nicest places with the of nicest course. food and the nicest beds. Of and course. Nicest wine. Fucking generals. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what, one of the first things we have to do is that uh, Lee Marvin and Charles Bronson are going to lower a rope yeah. to get them up to this floor. And right as that happens, a guard comes out and they left the rope out yeah. there. And it's a pretty tense scene. Mm-hmm. And now uh, Charles Bronson has to do what he's been practicing to do, which is throw that fucking grappling hook. <laughs> Have you ever done a grappling hook? No, no. Me neither. I've done grenades, but no grappling hook. Grappling hook looks hard. Yeah. Yeah. And misses it and misses it. Yep. Um, Franco's not pleased with this. And finally he gets it. Yeah. And everybody's, this is where the importance of reaction shots really come up because you see everybody's relief. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jim Brown and Maggot. Man, the choice of the name Maggot is like... It's on purpose. It's, yeah, a little bit. Imagine, yeah. They come up into the house. I don't think this was the best job for Maggot. Well, <laughs> right. Eventually, yeah. <laughs> like, if you know you have a psychopath, I wouldn't put him in the place with the Germans. Well, they figured they put him with, Jim, with Jefferson, Jim Brown's character, so he right. can control him. If anyone can control him, it's Jefferson. Well, and this is another great point, is that yeah. we saw Maggot's racism at the beginning. Yep. 
who does he have to take orders from? Right. Jefferson. Right. That's just a great, great choice. The guard comes out, wants a Donald Sutherland to light a cigarette. <laughs> it's a good moment. Yeah. He bumps um, around all day. Yeah, it's just brilliant. Yeah. Uh, Maggot is lying on the bed. This is where you see him just start to lose it. Yep. Yeah. Start playing with a hand grenade. That's just nuts, man. That's a crazy person. Yep. And it's not nuts like in a way that's like, hey, I'm being nuts. It's a believable kind of nuts. That no, Telly he's a crazy person. Doing. Yeah, he's legitimately crazy. Like unpredictable. Like you have no mm-hmm. idea what this person is doing. Like whatever's going through his brain right now. Yeah, the definition of unstable. Yeah. Is in the dictionary. He's there in the dictionary. Yeah. In comes this girl yeah. looking around for someone. The poor blonde girl. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's funny too because, spoiler alert, all of these people are going to get killed. Sure, yes. But there's something about the way she gets killed that's just really horrible. Mm-hmm. Well, this too. Because we haven't heard her say anything negative. No, we haven't heard her say anything. Really sweet. Yeah, she's really sweet. She's probably, you know, she's probably bought and paid for and into this situation and just trying to survive uh, with these terrible pe- fucking people. And she innocently walks into the situation, which of course, once again, reinforces the evil that is Maggot and then what he does, right? Like, yeah. Covering her mouth and then having her walk into the knife. Which well, is, but, but first he oh, yeah. tells her to scream. Yeah, he tells her to scream. scream. On purpose. Yeah. Scream. That's a weird. That's sadistic. That's sadism. Fetishistic. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, sadistic. Moment. It's also self-destructive because he ruins the mission, or it almost costs the mission well, on purpose. Co- he, yeah, I mean, on purpose. I don't think he cares about the mission at all. No. Yeah. This is why I go back to you should have dumped him. Yeah. I'm for the movie you shouldn't, but certainly for, for, a good point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and there's this moment where Jefferson sees what has happened, and yeah. what should he do? Like, what do you do in that moment? Yeah. And then Maggot, of course, opens fire, and now, of course, we know what to do. Right. And I love, and as soon as there's, when, when the scream happens, mm-hmm. the German generals down below just kind of go, ah, whatever. Yeah. Because they think someone's having sex or yeah. chasing a girl or something. Who cares? Yeah. Nerves, pre-war yeah. nerves, yeah. whatever, yeah. Um, and, but when the um, gunfire happens, what do the generals say? Everyone above the rank of lieutenant yeah. into the bomb shelter. <laughs> fucking generals. I tell you. Um, uh, one other thing we the should point out. German, ge- uh, Nazi generals. Let's sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, Ernest Borgnine seems cool. He's a good general. He seems like a good guy. <laughs> yeah. um, one thing I, that I should point out that's interesting. In general, in movies, you're yeah. going to make a, dis- a choice. Do I subtitle another language or do I not subtitle right, another right. language? In this movie, they choose to subtitle it when it's useful yeah. and not subtitle when they don't. So when we want to hear those guards talking and see that they're really ordinary guys, subtitled. Yeah. When we want to hear the general say, everyone above lieutenant going to the bomb shelter, subtitled. Right. When we want Lee Marvin confused about what someone is saying to him, no subtitles. Mm-hmm. So, so that's kind of wrong, but works in this subjective way. And it's also fascinating that they give him German accents, speak right. English. Why would you give him German accents when they're, they're not actually speaking English to each other? Well, You're just making them speak English for the narrative of the movie, but us subconsciously, we need to hear the accent so we stay within the believability that these are German soldiers. Well, these are some of the great weird things that movies yeah. do that were just totally useful. Exactly. Like one of the other interesting ones is we only really know two or th- three or four maybe accents. Yes. Is that all other accents are British accents. Yeah. Like if you go to ancient Rome, they all speak with British they all accents. Speak with British they're not speaking with Latin accents. 
because we don't know what that sounds like. <laughs> That's a great you know, point. And we only have a couple of Asian accents. Yeah. Like we don't really differentiate between a Vietnamese accent and a Korean accent and a Japanese right. accent and a Chinese accent, although they're all really different. Of course. But because most just, people don't. Yeah. Because right. it's like, this is good enough. Right. You know? That's why someone like Tony Plana can play a person from every single Latino country right. ever or Hispanic right. country ever. Yeah. We don't know like Portuguese. Yeah. Right. Well, <laughs> what's, right. what's that? Right. Um, okay. Now the, the alarm goes off. Bronson kills the radio. At the same time, we've had Gilpin or one of the other guys. Yep. He's climbed up to the roof, and yeah. his job is to take out that radio tower. Mm -hmm. And as he's walking across the roof, his foot goes through the roof. Oh, my God. That looks, you know, he can't pull it out because nope. the, the boards are sticking at an angle down into his ankle. Mm -hmm. And he's stuck there. And what choice does he finally make? Throws a hand grenade? Yep. Sacrifices his own life. Mm -hmm. And this is where our dirty dozen have gone. These guys that are all rugged individualists, don't care about anything. Now this guy is willing to sacrifice his life yeah. to save the mission. It's a nobility. Yeah. Right. For a character that we really didn't spend a whole lot of time with. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, which is the one thing where I kind of wish, like, oh, I kind of wish that seemed like a big thing. I wish we had gotten to know that guy. Well, I better. think that's why they gave him that death. Mm. Because everybody else dies in different, dies in a little more uh, obvious ways. Yeah. Uh, Donald gets killed. Yeah. Just slumps over. <laughs> Just slumps over. And our sergeant runs up and takes up his position. Yeah. Jefferson has killed Maggot, which is correct. Valid. We're, we're kind of happy with that. Yeah. Generals rush down into the basement, which we see as they go down there. It's filled with explosives. Yes. Um, and we start to get a sense of where this movie is going to go. Uh, and I think they're safe because they're locking the doors yeah. on Charles Bronson, on Lee Marvin, thinking that there's like smiles on their faces as they're locking well, let's, the doors. Well, let's back up just a little okay. bit. So Lee Marvin and Charles Bronson are having to go down yeah. with the generals yeah. to the basement because they're officers. And Lee Marvin sprains his ankle, fake, yeah. uh, right at the last moment. And then they open fire on these people. Right. And, and, the, and just as you say... The inside the basement, they think, ah, ha, ha, we're safe as they close the door on Lee Marvin. Right. And in fact, this is actually the opposite. This is exactly what happen. they want him to do. Yeah, exactly. For some reason, they take the time to change back into their fatigues. Yeah, this is, makes no <laughs> sense to me at all. I don't, I don't get that. Yeah. Um, we have, but they have a moment to connect with the French staff yep. to show that they're kind of liberating, which is, of course, a little uh, aside to... Uh, the Vichy French yeah. who were like uh, you know against the the German occupation. So there's there's a little moment to connect, and then they move forward. Right. Yeah. Well, and and there's the one of the other dozen who I don't know who it is. Yeah. is going. What do I do with these guys? And they say, leave the French, kill the Germans. Yep. And he's left in this moment of I have to just shoot these people that are just standing there, yeah. which he's struggling with. Yeah. And now we're outside, and we come up with the idea because we've seen the explosives that are down in the bomb shelter, and there's all these air vents. Let's open up the air vents, and we're going to put hand grenades down there. And gasoline. Dump gasoline. Why? So this is a it really, seems unnecessary. Well, this it's, is why is it so much more viscerally horrible yeah. when they pour gasoline down there than it is when they drop hand grenades in there? I think because with hand grenades, it's an explosion and you might survive. With gasoline, it's an overt face-to-face -face kind of attack as opposed to a shoot-you-from-a-distance kind of attack. By setting you on fire... It's uh, what extreme, what it was in Apocalypse Now, uh, terminate with extreme prejudice. It's with terminating extreme. with extreme prejudice. Yeah, I think for me what it is is that it's the moment of being the person in the bomb shelter and feeling the gasoline land on you. Oh, my God. And knowing what it's about. It's yep. the knowing ahead of time. and Because you, you don't smell a hand grenade. Nope. But you could smell the gasoline. I'm mm -hmm. covered in gasoline. This right. room is filled with gasoline. I'm and trapped explosives. in here. And they're expl it's, the, it's the knowledge of the impending death yeah. that is part of what's making this so horrible. And while we're doing... And this is, again, this is where... Oh, I can't feel good about this. No. 
I'm not feeling like, yay, my heroes are beating the bad guys. Right. This isn't an action sequence. This right. is an act of terrorism, essentially. Well, yes, it's an act of... It's war. It's war. Things are going to happen in war. But, but it's there, not a battle. There's, there's a sadism here that isn't necessary, but is put in here to show you. Once again, this is an anti-establishment film. Right. So the, they're even against the idea of war. By showing you the dirty parts of war that was coming back from people who had been to Vietnam. Right. These stories of what they'd had to do, these villages, what they'd had to do, you know, killing women and children, that kind of thing, to, because they didn't know who to believe. And so you have this, it's playing out now in a World War II scenario. Well, it goes to, not that I think this is a philosophical movie. No, no. This is an adventure movie. Yep. But, but it does go to the question of, like, what, what is war? Yep. You know, for Colonel Green, war is following these rules and doing this thing in the correct way. Absolutely. And for Major Reisman, this is all bullshit. Yep. We're killers. Our job is to kill the enemy. Right, right. And that's a completely... And so his mindset, like, this is what we have to do. Um, so we're pouring gasoline down there. And of course, there's a sniper. And one by one, our dozen is going down to <laughs> 10 and 7 and 8. Yeah. And they're getting wiped out. Yeah. Franco manages to find a half track. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's got a big gun on the back. We've got to get that <laughs> thing off. And finally, we say to Jim Brown, your job is to... Pull the pins on each of these grenades and throw one down each one of these holes, do a sprint, yeah. and get back to the half track where all of us are waiting. Which is a kind of a way of what they did with Trini Lopez, where they have him playing his guitar and singing a song. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're going to cast certain people who've done other things or are known for doing other things, you mm -hmm. want to give them a showcase, right? So right. they give Jefferson this kind of running back showcase because he's Jim Brown of running and throwing right. the hand grenades. You've got a guy who's known for running. That's right. We better have him run. <laughs> Um, and so, not well, an easy thing to do, by the way. Run, and, run and throw pit. the grenades at the same time. It's not That's easy. Never happened to me. Bronson gets hit. Yeah, gets dragged into the half track. We're really getting down to the end. Mm -hmm. Finally, he says, "Jim Brown, do it." Jim Brown does his final run. As he's just thrown the last grenade, he gets shot. I remember feeling like, like emotional about it when he gets shot because he's the one guy in the film that. Uh, look, I love Charles Bronson, but Bronson survives. Yeah, Jim Brown's death affects me a lot. This is the worst death in the movie, yeah. by by far, because he was such a noble character. He was, and well, and this is the thing. Mm -hmm. I think. I wonder if they had to make this again, if they'd kill fewer of the dozen. Because, well, there have been sequels, Steve. I know, there, but there's not a lot of guys left. It's like, it's like this movie, the way they do it, it ends up being mostly a tragedy. Yeah. And I wish that we'd had, I wish that Jim Brown had survived and Donald mm -hmm. Sutherland. You know, it's like, right. let, let some of our, let me feel a little bit good about Posey it. Posey too. Yeah. I and like there's an argument for Franco. Yeah, you know? yeah, to a and par degree. Partially. And today, of course, they would have because you're mm -hmm. thinking about sequels. They weren't thinking about sequels right, then. Right, they ended right. up doing some. Right. Um, which maybe I've seen. I don't know. I have. Oh, yeah. Every single damn one of those oh. stupid things. Even the made-for-TV one that Lee Marvin came back and did in the 80s. Wow. I've seen that one three or four times. <laughs> it's <laughs> oh. like Magnificent Seven. I've seen all the Magnificent Seven sequels. I think I've seen more of those than I've seen the Dirty Dozen. Well, that's yeah. fair. Yeah. It's a military um, thing, man. The, and the other, even as we're trying to get out, mm -hmm. Lee Marvin gets shot. No one escapes unscathed. Yeah. Except he, for his uh, uh, sergeant. No, he gets shot. Does he get shot too? He gets shot. Yeah, oh, he's okay. dragging himself to the to the. Okay, track. okay. Yeah. No, he gets shot. And I love the moment of Lee Marvin lifting up the machine gun with one hand yeah. while the other hand is bloody. 
That's like, I don't know, it's almost the same gesture. It's like Carl Weathers in Predator after oh, his yeah. arm gets shot off. Um, you know, it is it is so loud. This is like, because I think this movie is a precursor of action movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We haven't gotten there yet to right. be like full action. But right. but this sequence is, this is big. It's a Sergeant Rock moment from yeah, the comics. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And and they are going to go out firing. I mean, yep. they're going to they're firing. They're shooting machine guns. The machine gun is firing at the at the car. The car gets on the bridge. We drive over the car. We <laughs> knock a car off the bridge. I mean, this is big for 1967. Yeah, this is big stuff. Yep. Well, Boom. the dudes in the boat. Oh yeah, the dudes right? in the, the boat get in the wiped boat. out. The two dudes they think they're going to make it. They get wiped out. Then, yeah. they, they, then the guys in the half track wipe out those dudes in the ground. Who wiped out the dudes in the boat? So. Everybody gets wiped out yeah. except for at right now at this point Lee Marvin Charles Bronson the dude is the sergeant and Frank uh, and Franco drunk has and the Franco goes we made it boom dead never say you made it yeah, never say you made it in movies <laughs> it's a good, Until you're it's all a the good way rule home. in life <laughs> cut to we we, we kind of drive off and yeah. we start hearing this report of the member of these team known as the Dirty Dozen right and they all died in in the line of duty and we get this thing and we're left with. Bronson, Lee Marvin, and the sergeant in the hospital. In the hospital, yeah. And they get visited by the generals, yeah. who say, "Hey, good job." Neither of them respond. Right. <laughs> I love <laughs> Charles Bronson's last moment of. Boy, oh boy, oh boy! Killing generals could get to be a habit with me. Yeah, with his arms folded. I love that. Oh, it's great. It's a strong moment, and it's, again, this anti-establishment like mm-hmm. moment. Yeah. I love if you juxtapose this to the hospital scene at the end of It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Mm. Both reiterate their issues with the person of authority. Because even Ethel Merman's slip and falling, which makes them all right. laugh. Ethel's been the one that's been screaming at all of them through the whole film. In essence, being the general in the whole film. So it's just funny to see this happening again in a different, in a more serious format. Right. right? So, right. Uh, but it's great. It's such a, uh, I, you know, the whole thing with Jim Brown dying is like, this begins the trope of the black guy always dying oh, to, yeah. uh, to show nobility of the black character. Right. This happens in a lot of sci-fi movies, a lot of war movies. This happens throughout. You see the trope. It stopped happening. It's ha- it has stopped happening, but it was a very big deal uh, yeah. uh, when it started to be something that people noticed in the '90s and the 2000s. Yeah, yeah that's a great point. Yeah. Um, so the movie goes on to be a huge, huge hit. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned, Cassavetes gets nominated for Oscar. It gets a few like you know sound editing. Yeah, and, sure. You know, a couple of other Oscars. And as you know, I think we've already kind of said it. But not only does it spawn a bunch of sequels, most of which maybe aren't so good, yeah. but this is hugely influential for all sorts of movies. Yeah. You know, from Armageddon, Aliens, you know, all sorts of yeah. films. Sure. Uh, Full that, Metal that, Jacket has some things in here, yeah. Yeah. That, that This idea of putting this team together and going out on the adventure, Stripes we mentioned before. Right. Like, there's a lot. This is, this is one of the key movies, I think, when you look at films today... You know, even things like The Avengers mm-hmm. is, yeah, is, is great point, I, I think, comes from Dirty Dozen right. in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, uh, Nick Fury is, in essence, the Colonel Reisman character bringing these. Yeah. They're not they're not villains, but they're they are superheroes without a team, and right. so he brings them together as a team to fight a greater foe. Yeah. Well, and there's something I think what we learn uh, is that there's something really fun about watching the team to come together. There always is watching the team to come to, and, and having mm-hmm. the here's this iconic character and here's that iconic right. character and here's how they're going to work together. That's really fun. Well, if you look at the fact, look, we're a sports dominated society that happens in sports. But for those who don't like sports, is nerd shit. With nerd shit, same thing. You bring them together. They're fighting as a team. X Men, Avengers, like you mentioned, Justice League, whatever. 
the idea of wanting to be part of a community is very, very uh, uh, intrinsic in our nature as human beings. The fraternities exist, for the sororities exist for that reason. You know, Mensa society, this idea to be, to be part of a team, this idea of bringing a team together just grab, just really resonates with us as human beings from a very deep place, almost primal place, the need right. to have a tribe. You know what I'm saying? Of whatever form, it's it's from there. Yeah. Well, and you combine that with training, which yes. we love to see in movies. We yes. want to see someone improve and gain their skills. Sure. And you combine that with you know working together to achieve a goal. Mm-hmm. And then the thing that Dirty Dozen does that maybe some of these others don't do, Stripes definitely does, yeah. is the joy of rebellion. Yeah. The joy of you know flipping off the the establishment mm-hmm. and and succeeding despite it. Like that war game sequence is such a great like mm-hmm. fuck you to the establishment. Yeah. We don't care about your rules. It's a lot of fun. It happens in Heartbreak Ridge as well. That's why I say, right? It's like the redhead. I should see it again. I, I can dozen. remember seeing it in the movie mm-hmm. theater, and that might be the only time I saw it. Yeah. So, what are your final thoughts on uh, Dirty my Dozen? Final th- this is a film that you you cannot consider yourself a cinephile fan if you haven't seen. There's so much about this film that still, as Steve said here in the end, echoes throughout generations of films that have, or decades of films that have come afterwards. And also, there's a great line of Reservoir Dogs where uh, Michael Madsen says, you're a big Lee Marvin fan, aren't you? <laughs> that matters. And when sure. you see Lee Marvin at the apex of himself as an actor in a film like this, you understand what that means. He is cool. He is the birth of cool. Like, as Miles Davis, Miles Davis was in jazz, Lee Marvin is in hmm. film. He is almost untouched in that way. And if you want to enjoy really good actors, not doing method stuff, or see the you see it a little bit with Cassavetes, but that's a whole other thing of style of acting he's doing. But you see these really good established actors carrying this film in a powerful way. You see these great young actors in this situation as the Dirty Dozen kind of beginning their process as getting known in the in the wider world as actors. There's so much to enjoy about the film. Yes, it's two and a half hours, but you're, it's two and a half hours well spent with great actors, great dialogue, and something that makes you really think about what we do in war, what we do with our prisoners, what we do as a society, as a civilization, what it says about us. And I think it's, it's an important film. To, it's a touchstone film in the history of film. Um, I totally agree. And I think what's interesting about like what you said at the end in terms of a movie that will make you think about yeah. war is this hits that, I think what's that sort of perfect sweet spot mm-hmm. of you can watch it and not think about anything. Absolutely. Is that you could just be like, this is a fun adventure and it totally works on that level. Sure. And then if you want to think a little bit more about about war, about leadership, about the establishment, about race, those things are in here, yep. but they're not hitting you over the head. And this is why this is that 1967 yeah. transition movie. Um, it was funny. One thing that occurred to me, and I'll always think of the Dirty Dozen for this, is that I remember in the Nor Ephron Sleepless in Seattle, yeah. they talk about there is one manly movie that all men see and women don't like and one kind of more feminine movie that all women see and uh, men don't like and they are An Affair to Remember and The Dirty Dozen. The Dirty Dozen. <laughs> and, and, and you know what? It's probably true. Absolutely like, true. This is like a real testosterone fest. Yep. I mean, we could put it up with Predator and a few others that are just like... I'm not saying that women won't like Dirty Dozen, right? But I am saying if we did a demographic survey, yeah, it would be mostly guys. Yeah, it's a small, small percentage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's a movie that means a lot to me, and 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 me I think that's what we we think about the Dirty Dozen. As always, we'd like to hear what you think. On visit our Facebook page at the Cinephiles. You can subscribe to us on YouTube. Please leave your comments there. You can subscribe to us through Stitcher. You can subscribe to us through iTunes. Mm-hmm. If you do subscribe to us through iTunes, maybe leave a, a review. It'd be re- they're really, really helpful to us. Yeah. They slow down a bit lately. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, I don't know what's, what's going on. on. Yeah. 
Yeah. Maybe if we were to rebel against authority in some way, maybe have some sort of war game where we attack some other podcast and took them out. (laughs) Maybe that would get us a review. I also want to address this idea. Just because we have started a Patreon does not mean that we still enjoy doing the movie and you still can't, or doing the the show, and you still can't listen to our show without feeling this desire or need to have to contribute. Like, I want this to be very clear. The people who who can contribute, contribute, and we appreciate. People who don't, we're still going to do the show for you too. So that's the thing. So if that's what's keeping you from listening to us or maybe spreading this around uh, then I understand but there's no need we, we don't beg for money we're not asking for money we're saying this is here if you want to help us do the show it just helps us do the show we're not saying we need you to contribute this is not some kind of telethon we're, and so if that's like bothering you a little bit I want to alleviate your fears with that as, uh, from that you know Steve and I were just like we put it out there to see if it was possible because the show was getting expensive to do but in no way does it mean we'll stop doing the show or, you know, if we don't get a certain amount of money. This isn't a Jimmy Roberts or whatever his name, Oral Sw- Jimmy Swag, whatever his name is, or Roberts. Jimmy Swaggart Swag- or Roberts yeah, situation. Well. You know, they'll get called home if I, you know. So uh, I just want to make sure that if that's a reason for people not leaving comments or whatever. So. No, we, well, this is the thing. It's like we want, we want to do the show at whatever level you want to receive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, we, we're thrilled that you're listening to the show. It, we're thrilled if you want to comment on Facebook or on Twitter, yeah. where you can reach me at SR Morris. Um, that's great and you can reach John at, at the Roca says mm-hmm. we're thrilled with that if you want to join Patreon that's great too if you want to join for one dollar that's awesome yeah we've we are we're thrilled with our one dollar patrons mm-hmm. we're thrilled we have a few forty dollar patrons we're extremely grateful to thank Absolutely. you very very much yeah. it helps us keep the show going you can go to patreon.com slash the cinephiles and uh, I gave you, I gave out your Twitter, so I'm going to say, is there anything else you wanted to... Oh, yeah, yeah. You guys can always listen to me on the Outlaw Nation podcast, on the Schmozno Plus podcast channel, plus being free. It is not like Screen Junkers, you have to pay for it. That's on the Schmo- Every Thursday morning, I drop a new episode. Uh, the Collider Movie Talk is on Fridays at 10 a.m. And the Top 10 Show is back. We have right. come back. We are, uh, every Tuesday morning, we drop a new episode. We just did the Top 10 Comeback Specials. And by the time you hear this, we'll have done the Top 10 of something else. And I can't... Yeah. Oh, Assassin movies, I think. Ooh, assassin movies. Based because of a to- oh, CIA movies, CIA movies Top because of CIA a, because of Atomic Blonde. Oh, is one of them one that we spoke about on the Cinephiles? Yes, yes, yes. Excellent. So, uh, that'll be there, and 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 of course now, as I mentioned at the beginning, I am a columnist on the trackingboard.com. That's tracking boardcom uh, I'll be dropping a column every Tuesday and Thursday about what's going on, whatever I'm passionate about, which I'm very happy they're giving me an opportunity to do. And you're doing Game of Thrones again too, right? Yes, and we're doing Game of Thrones every Sunday night for the sea. Oh, well, every Monday. Well, what we're doing now for the rest from episode two through six we are doing the reviews monday mornings and then the finale we will do it sunday night like we did the premiere sunday night so there it's called uh, thrones talk on collider network wow that's a that's a lot of roca this is my life man you can roca it up in a big big way and then come see me at universal yeah. studios if you want in the <laughs> harry potter land as if that's not enough <laughs> for me all you could do is go watch the assistance on itunes <laughs> It's just one movie. Um, So um, on that note, (laughs) that is it for this week. We will see you next time on The Cinephiles. 